It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we whalermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down to old Maui. Welcome to Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. I am Tilly. And I'm Ben. And uh, we are here to talk about Moby Dick. Yep, we're talking uh, about Moby Dick in Moby Dick. Finally. And it's about Moby Dick. Yes. Uh, the reason we're being a couple of jokesters is that today we're talking about chapter 41 of Moby Dick, which is called Moby Dick, which is the chapter where he tells you what Moby Dick is about. Well, he tells you what Moby Dick is, and also what I... Moby Dick's about, and also what Moby yeah, Dick's it... about. <laughs> yes, all those statements are true. All those statements are totally true. Like, this is the chapter on some level where if you were reading this book and you literally didn't know about what Moby Dick was as a novel beforehand, right? Which is not how anyone has ever approached Moby Dick for decades. But, like, if you pretend that you are that naive reader. Honestly, if you are that naive reader, cherish it. Yeah, I mean, I almost was a little bit. Like, oh, not... not mm, my fault. Yeah, I know, right? <clears throat> I, well, okay, but I couldn't have actually been naive for, like, the stuff in this chapter, right? Uh, yeah, Like, yeah. the stuff about how... Um, the stuff about, like, who Ahab is as a symbolic figure, like, mm-hmm. that has entered culture in such a way that it's impossible not to know it. Yeah. Uh, but if you didn't already know who Ahab is as, as a symbolic figure... Um, this is the chapter that pretty much lays it out for you. Like, yeah, it almost has the vibes to me of, um, and th- this is an unflattering comparison. I don't mean to say that it is bad <laughs> in the ways that these are often bad, but this almost has the vibes of a clip show to me. Oh, okay. Yes. But it's the clip shows in Udana. Yes. Where it's like actually like extremely interesting and weird and like, Doing its own new narrative thing, yes. But all it is literally doing is reiterating the plot so far. And, like, y- yes. sort of contextualizing it for you to kind of make sure you're up to date on everything yeah. you've done. No, ab- absolutely. That's a really interesting parallel. I definitely didn't uh, think of it that way. I was just being like, whale, whale, old man, old man, old man versus oh, yeah. whale. This is truly a chapter about how old man versus whale is, like, the greatest fight, the greatest conflict of all time. I can't disagree. Like, on some level... With you or the novel. (laughs) Yeah. Like, it... it, God, it makes me think of, like... The old man versus the sea. I... That's, like... That predates this, right? Uh, I thought the old man and the sea was early 20th century. Oh, I'm thinking of something else. Um, never mind. Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking of, um, what's that famous work of literature that I think is by Coleridge with an albatross? Is it called The Albatross? It, it's called The Albatross. Yeah. Or, no, no, it's The Rime of the Ancient Mariner. It's not called The Albatross. The, 
There we go. The Rime of the Ancient Mariner yes. is what I was thinking about. Um, yeah, no, which that... is also about an old man and the sea, but is not is. the same thing as an old man. It's also the about old some... man and the sea is the other thing I'm thinking of, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's the the one about a fish, I believe, a large fish. Um, and... Wow, a big fish! Never heard of that before. Yeah, no, it's 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 a real it's a uh, what was it Hemingway? Uh, this is just me really exp- uh, expressing how a particular subset of very important early 20th century literature completely failed to make any impact on me as a person. And if, if, if any, you know, any people who are, say, in my grad program happen to listen to this and just sort of stare in horror at what I'm saying right now, and if I got the author wrong, I'm sorry, but I'm not that sorry. Well, we could simply look this up, but they do say that fact-checking ruins podcasts, and we've actually got a lot of good stuff to get into today, so, like, I don't fucking care about Hemingway right now. That's very fair. But I actually had a... I I have a really cute personal story about reading Hemingway in high school, and about how much Hemingway sucks, but, um... We'll take it as read. Yeah, that's bonus content for Ben later. (laughs) Today we're talking about Moby Dick. Um, (laughs) so, uh... Yeah, um, I guess let me get started with a summary. Yeah, that seems great. Um, Today we're trying something slightly new for the summaries, which is that I'm just using the one from litcharts.com, which is like, you know, like like a Sparknotes type website that gives you a summary of what happens in classic literature. And also analysis, which I'm choosing to ignore because... Oh, it's yeah. analysis intended for like high school readers who are trying to pass their classes. And that as has been established, I hate how Moby Dick is taught in high schools. Exactly. So we know that the analysis section on litcharts.com about Moby Dick will enrage us, so we are mostly ignoring it because we're not its target audience. <laughs> That's very fair. Um, but we are going to just use the summary. Um. So, uh, yeah, the, the chapter, this starts out actually with, um, I, I was really, like, pleased when I began reading this chapter, because I hadn't quite remembered it was structured this way. It starts out by answering, like, one of the big questions that I had as of the end of our last reading, mm-hmm. which was, okay, what, it was Ishmael's place in all this, right? Like, as he literally says at the beginning of the chapter, I, Ishmael, was one of that crew. Yeah, I, I actually really like that. I think that the, um... This sort of, by the way, the narrator's a person coming back in is really great. And I really like the um, the way Ishmael relates himself to it immediately. I, Ishmael, had been one of that crew is, I mean, you said this was a clip show. And I think that's a really good point because this is, this is reiterating the basic statement of the beginning of the book. Call me Ishmael. Like you're totally right. This yeah. is a reintroduction yeah. of Ishmael the narrator after we've managed to reintroduce narrative after cytology. The entire book had yeah, to do it... a season reboot to get back after Jesus. cytology in the quarterback deck. <laughs> yeah, no, you're you're totally right. Like it does actually feel like you could totally if you wanted to split Moby Dick in in sections, I think it would make a lot of sense to put a break at the end of last section and before this next one. Mhm. Um I mean, like, there are probably a lot of other good places you could do that. I'm sure, actually, how one might theoretically subdivide Moby Dick is, like, something people talk about a lot, right? Yeah, yeah, like, you know, in, in order to publish the uh, Bayon edition sci-fi, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, but it's, like, Space Moby Dick. 
God. I mean, listen, of course I, wouldn't I would lose that my either, mind. No. No, yeah, I, I like, especially... The thing is, like, if they did... If they did, like, a... Um, I mean, there's a number of things here. Like, first of all, if they did just, like, a cool animated Moby Dick, I'd lose my mind over that. Oh, yes, uh, yes, yes, absolutely. I Anything crossing over Moby Dick in space, I would also really like. And then, like, I also kind of think that just, like, anything that was a, a fandom-y Moby Dick... Mm. Isn't that just Homestuck? <laughs> Sorry, this is a long-running thing between us uh, about the, the form of the epic and what, what counts as an epic. And uh, Tilly has argued very cogently that Homestuck is a kind of epic in the same way Moby Dick is, which they're not antique epics. They're a, a sort of a new genre where rather than, a, rather than attempting to account for an entire cultural world, like an entire world image, which the antique epic is generally understood to try to do, these modern epics attempt to encapsulate a subset of the world that is very defined by, like, a subculture. In this case, whaling mm-hmm. is the entire world of Moby Dick. Yeah, and, and the if you're interested in talking about what exactly is the social world that Homestuck aims to fully capture, um, do at me on Twitter. I would, I would actually love to have that conversation, but, but I don't think I'm prepared to make a statement about it. Oh, yeah, no, no, that's very fair. <laughs> I, I have the sense that there's a number of classic science fiction big books. I'm thinking here of my personal obsession, The Book of the New Sun by Gene Wolfe, which is also very mm-hmm. much an epic. And But what subculture it is, I mean, the easy answer is, oh, it's science fiction, golden age science fiction. But saying that is immediately just like, you know, throw things at me. It's It, it doesn't function. It's the... It's the obvious easy answer, and it doesn't really satisfy when you actually read the book. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Like there, you can, I, you, I can make the argument for it, but I know that I am making a bad argument when I do so. Yeah. So I too uh, really want to just talk about the form of the epic and the book of the new sun and yes. everything, but we should actually yes, focus I, in. I just want. I, I think that what's happening here is that this is such an interesting structural moment that we've been we've gotten stuck on like three different specific structural things this chapter is doing (laughs) i know and i also think this chapter is super relevant to moby dick as an epic like moby dick Mm -hmm. as something that i mean also uh yeah shit maybe we should just kind of talk about it structurally before we actually go through what it says i don't know um that might be too confusing uh no that'll be too good yeah i think the structure can come in as we do the summary as it has. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the thing that I was just thinking, though, is that um, we've also talked about, I mean, you talked uh, in previous episodes about, like, um, you know, your interest in modernism studies and, like, mm-hmm. that, that field's understanding of, like, what the modernist, like, what modernism is, right? Yeah. And, and, and so... Various complicated ways of trying to under trying to understand modernism, why it occurred, you know, when it did and how it did, and whether whether modernism is necessarily dead and was just this one tiny slice of time, or if modernism has principles that could be, you know, derived more largely. Yeah, exactly. And so it's like, if modernism is something that you can, like, define and say it has this principle, then you could reasonably say that Moby Dick is modernist, even though it obviously wasn't published during what is understood as the modernist period. Yeah. Uh, we, we kind of, like glossed over that argument before yeah, and like just yeah. didn't even bother to state it which we kind of <laughs> didn't need to i i honestly think like 
I think people understand that, like, we weren't literally trying to say that Moby Dick was published in, in 1910, right? <laughs> um, but... Yeah, it, I will say it did get popular and, like, become a classic in about 1920, so take from that what you will. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that's relevant. I think if you want to think about Moby Dick as a book that wasn't exactly published in 1851, like, or, or like, that was obviously literally published in 1851, but that has a, a birth that occurs after that, kind of. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's, like, a relevant way to think about it. I don't know a ton about the, um... Oh. I know about the Moby Dick revival. I don't know a huge amount. Like, I know so that it there's, a, there's an apocryphal story that what happened is Moby Dick fell so out of, you know, general I think readership. I know this one. <laughs> that, you know, no, I'm, I'm sure you've heard this, this story before, but I don't know if our readers have. And I don't think it's come up before in this podcast, and I think it should. Um, yeah, go on. Where the apocryphal story is that Moby Dick effectively fell completely out of interest because it was so big and so weird that even Melville's friends weren't really willing to fight to defend it. And ultimately it ended uh. up being kept in libraries uh, on the basis of the cytology chapter and the descriptions of Whaling's techniques and equipment that exist throughout it got saved in non-fiction as a weird mm -hmm. frames narrative around information about whaling until someone came upon it was like hey this is this is this is Herman Melville and uh it was rediscovered in 20 or the 20s and from there became you know the great american novel <clears throat> yeah and like for what it's worth the apocryphal version of that story that i remember is like obviously sort of mythically heightened like the one that i remember hearing is a version where uh like uh it, it was made to sound in the story that i remember much more singular like as mm, like there was somehow... one copy yeah like obviously that could never have been the story as i'm now talking about it aloud i'm like it was never the case that Moby Dick literally was winnowed down to one copy. Did I ever really believe that when I was 14? I mean, I um, the first version of that story I heard definitely was basically like, you know, they were taking away books no one ever read from the shelves of the nonfiction section, and there was this <laughs> one copy of a book with a whale on it, and then the librarian was like, huh, Herman Melville, and decided to read it, and now Moby Dick gets taught in high schools everywhere. And it's, you know, that's that's a charming story. But yeah, I it makes me suspect the entire story I, you know, told a second ago. But I do think that story says a lot about how people perceive the book at the very least. Yeah, and like, there is a... the it, It's a historical fact that Moby Dick as a novel was not understood to be a classic of American literature oh, yeah. until significantly after its publication. Absolutely, like, so yes. The, 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 the 70 Moby... year gap, approximately, or I think 50 years is generally what I've seen, maybe it didn't fall out of favor immediately, just didn't hit the way he'd hoped it would, is absolutely mm -hmm. real. Yeah, and and I think that's that's a that's that's a fact even if the like forgotten, believed to be nonfiction, rediscovered by a librarian story is, you know, mm -hmm. kind of just a fantasy. Um, it's also a very cute fantasy, I have to say, because it's like a fantasy about, uh, like, truly good literature never really being lost, which is, like, not true. And yeah. Unfortunately, like, it's yeah. sad that that's not true. Yeah, no, but, it's, like, it's, it's a way of giving hope that something that is not appreciated in its own time, but is, it has this merit and it has this, this wonderful idiosyncrasy, will, 
eventually find a readership and, you know, find, in fact, immense acclaim. It's it's a rags-to-riches story, but about a book. God, yeah, it kind of is. Um, but yeah, uh, so, to the summary. <laughs> uh, How many times so, can we do this? I know, right? <laughs> uh, Ishmael's like, yeah, I, uh, I was a member of that crew, and I, I, I swore that oath. Um... And, uh... We made it out of line two. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm like, realizing also that it's going to be very tempting to read a lot of stuff aloud for me. That um, makes sense. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, I just, I do want to read the sentence because I think it's extremely evocative of oh, the absolutely. way that Ishmael is... Ishmael, as he's saying, he's not just literally kind of, uh, you know, factually admitting, oh, yeah, I was there. He is saying, like, yeah, I was, I was part of that body made up of many people. He was there um, for this. Yeah, like, he, he was he was physically engaged, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, the bit that I'm reading is, With greedy ears I learned the history of that murderous monster against whom I and all the others had taken our oaths of violence and revenge. So, like, what's basically happening here is they're all having a party and telling each other, like, stories about how evil Moby Dick is and how they have to kill him. You know? Like, with greedy ears... They, they are... They are engaging in the process of, like, justifying what they're doing by telling each other about what Moby Dick is. And then that's what this chapter is. Yes, that is... Oh, that's a really good point. Yeah, this is absolutely a chapter of, you know, just telling stories about Moby Dick and all the strange powers and qualities associated with him and, like, uh, attributed to him uh, by sailors throughout the whaling rounds. And... When you when you said when you describe this image, the thing that the, the, like this scene, the image that came to mind was um, so I think I've mentioned before that my favorite song from Beauty and the Beast was uh, "Kill the Beast." Uh huh. I mean, it's a good song. Yeah, and so I just immediately man uh, imagined Ahab uh, doing his version of that. Oh yes, absolutely. I mean, yeah, that's totally what it is. Uh, it, uh, it does rule, and it's also great. I think because. Um, I mean, so, like, uh, I mean, there's so much that's good about this. One thing that comes to my mind is that, you know, the last chapter ended at midnight with all all the sailors reveling. Mm -hmm. So it feels like this is, they have finally tired themselves out, and a few stragglers are just sitting up telling ghost stories about Moby Dick. Mm. Like... See, I, I was going when you. I thought you were going for a different metaphor there, which is that this is Ahab. Uh, sorry, not Ahab. This is Ishmael waking up after the party and going over everything he did last night. He's like, oh, mm. oh, yeah, I swore eternal vengeance on a whale. You know, that would also make a lot of sense. And I think one way that I like that a lot is that, like, the vibe for this chapter is very much the vibe of like morning after a you know wild party where mm-hmm. you are taking something that is kind of fundamentally terrifying and fitting it into a narrative that you can understand that makes you, if not necessarily feel safe and happy, at least, like, comprehend what has happened to you, Mm, you know? Yeah. Like, this is the morning after rationalization. Yeah, there's there's a line, actually, we're still not out of the first paragraph, because there's a line where... uh, Ishmael says, um, and more did I hammer and clinch my oath because of the dread in my soul. Yeah, that's right. Like, he has, Ishmael has a little bit of a sense that this, Ishmael, I think, 
knows everything that Starbuck knows. Yeah. He he's the one Ishmael, he feels the portents. Exactly. And like he is is conscious of the fact that technically speaking this is pretty blasphemous, you know? Like he knows what metaphysical statements Ahab is making. Even if God, a fascinating ambiguity here is do we think that Ishmael the character in the narrative understands all the stuff that Ahab said to Starbuck or not? Because it's like, oh, he I... literally couldn't have heard it, but also it was in this bizarre play. So, like, everyone heard everything. It, it's like a dream. We don't know what happened. Yeah, no, I think like, you're, you're right. Yeah. Um, I think that... Okay, first of all, I think that we definitely need to keep moving on, but... Um, <laughs> but I think you're right. That there's that sort of... Uh, dreamlike ambiguity also extends to the qualities of the white whale. Yes, the white whale is totally a nightmare figure. Um, yeah. So, okay, so, so the, the, what he's doing here is, is, uh, he's gonna explain, basically, uh, what, what the myth of Moby Dick is. What Moby Dick means to people. Um, and, uh, so, you know, first of all, he, he explains that, like, there are a lot of rumors that propagate on the ocean, basically. And, uh, and, you know. Sorry, go on. Uh, yeah, well, well, he's, he's talking about kind of, like, how slowly, like, real information can actually get out from, like, an, an encounter that a whale ship has, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because, uh, you know... The ocean is vast, and the ships are small, and, like, don't cross each other's paths all that often. So, like, if one whaling vessel has, like, a really bizarre, fatal incident with Moby Dick of some kind, the news about it is not really going to get out to other whalers quickly, or in a, like... Direct manner. Yeah, it's all going to be passed through rumors. Yeah, you're Uh, going to... Well, actually, later in the book, we'll have um, a number of episodes of crossing paths with another whaling ship, and we'll learn a lot about the sort of manners involved there, and also about how that sort of, you know, discussion happens as, uh, as, frankly, Ahab is extremely boorish, and all he wants to know is, have you seen the white whale, other captain? No, Ahab. Fuck off. Honestly, like, it's things like that. That really do give the sense that you we were talking about before that this book is like depicting a subculture. Yeah. Because like, you know, it makes me think about like all the fucking uh, ways that information propagates itself through my social circles mm-hmm. that I would have a very difficult time explaining to people who aren't engaged in those social circles. Yeah, that's, you know? that's very fair as someone in those social that- circles. And that's that's pretty much what, you know, uh, Ishmael is trying to do here is describe how the the rumor mill of the whaling community mm, functions yes. and explain, okay, so this is why this method of propagating information has shaped these stories in this way, he's kind of saying. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's definitely going on for a while. And I, I really like there's a line here that's sort of laid in this description where it's basically, I mean, the argument... Um, Ishmael was making is basically very straightforward, which is you have these boats, they run into each other only occasionally, they spend lots of time at sea um, where, you know, you're facing danger and death from whales, so it's very reasonable that superstitions and uh, unreasonable claims start to propagate and get repeated and sensationalist ideas um, 
expand through this understanding of Moby Dick. Uh, the line that I quite like is, um, uh, in such latitudes and longitudes, pursuing to such a calling as he does, the whaleman is wrapped by influences all tending to make his fancy pregnant with many a mighty birth. Yeah, I also noticed that line. Yeah, uh, I, the bit where Ishmael <laughs> is uh, making himself the, um, the, uh, the the symbolic mother of the white whale did not escape me. I'm not sure what to do with it. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, so I was thinking about this. I mean, so uh, here's a note that I took, literally. Wonderfulness and fearfulness of rumors in whale fishery, clearly a quality Ishmael thinks is desirable to maximize. Oh, I I think Ishmael is of the opinion that like the outlandish stories that are produced by the particular qualities of you know the rumors mm-hmm. of whalemen are like excellent. Yes, and, and I, it is like good art. And almost. he specifically he compares it to how in terra firma and I, I really it's another sentence that I think stands out is. Uh, uh, But in maritime life, far more than in that of terra firma, wild rumors abound, wherever there is any adequate reality for them to cling to. And as the sea surpasses the land in this matter, so the whale fishery surpasses every other sort of maritime life. And, like, the the, the metaphor that that makes me think, especially since he previously described fabulous rumors naturally grow out of the very body of all surprising, terrible events, as the smitten tree gives birth to its fungi, like... It's, it's almost like there's so little floating around in the ocean, there's so little to ground yourself on, that anything that does show up just bursts into epistemological frenzy. Like, And that is also, I want to be clear, this is also something that literally happens in the ocean. Like, he's kind of talking about barnacles here. Mm, and oh, like, yeah, you're right. Like, coral. And, and, like, it is true that in the ocean, if you just have a piece of solid material... Stuff will grow on it. Right? Yeah, no, that's that is a very good point. That he is he's describing the sort of the ecosystem of a ship's hull or of driftwood and so on as uh, as as an ecosystem of rumors. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, and uh, yeah, so so I think you really do get the sense here, um, right? And and I want to. This was something that I was like, should I just say this at the beginning? And um, I, I'm like going back and forth on what to say here. But but I really think that um, this chapter to me strongly highlights how much like I think that Ishmael is in this chapter really consciously trying to establish a symbolic order of whaling, mm, right? Yes, and I I have. That to me is like is a really interesting modernist thing to do. Yeah, you know no, that's fair. Like, I, I think it's complex because, as we'll see, he's also skeptical a little bit skeptical yeah. about the the specific order that Ahab understands the world through. Um, yeah, so that's kind of what I was thinking about. Is like the idea that yeah, we can see that sort of Christianity as a symbolic order has clearly totally failed, right? Like. Uh, Starbuck is powerless. Um, Christianity had already failed Ishmael by the beginning of the novel because he was contemplating suicide. And, like, that is, you know, in a Christian context, if you're thinking about suicide, like, something has gone seriously wrong with your yeah conception um, of, like, what your soul is. You know oh what I no. mean? Um, 
it is kind of, I think considering suicide is really one of the classics for like Western literature of like this character is spiritually ill. Yeah. Like not to say, obviously considering suicide is also just like one of the things people do in real life when they are deeply unwell, but like, I I think it has a symbolic history in Western literature. I think that's fair. I, I do think it's worth remembering that Ishmael's particular Christianity is very strange and universalist. Um, Well, so that's kind of like, when I say Christianity has failed, I don't mean Ishmael's mm. Christianity. I mean Starbucks. And yeah, it is definitely sort of true saying, at this time in the text, at the very least, Chris, Starbucks Christianity, which is a very conventional Protestant work ethic Christianity, as we discussed, just got shouted down. And what I'm kind of saying is, it's not been highlighted because Ishmael hadn't yet, like, Ishmael has been, I guess I'm saying, in a state of uh, symbolic rupture Mm. up until this point in the novel. Uh, He has been someone whose symbolic structure, like a Starbuck-esque Christianity, was somehow failing him. And he has managed to piece together some vague senses of like, okay, I still am basically a Christian, right? Because I'm a ruptured Christian. And I I know what some of my values are, like this universalism that we've gotten out of the text. The the sweet brotherhood, the brotherly love, the... Kissing Queequeg straight on the mouth, all that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he he's very certain that the type of Christianity he would like to have would be gayer. <laughs> like, you can read it if you want to. Like, this is simplistic and a little bit presentist, but you can totally read this as like, oh, Ishmael is gay, so he can't be, like, the kind of Christian that Starbuck is, and he's trying to figure out what other kind he could possibly be, and it's like, fuck, maybe I'll go to sea and find out there? And now Ahab is preaching this. Yeah, yeah, and we're we should really move along in the summary, not because I yeah. think you're saying yep, anything yep, yep. wrong, but because we need to get to what Ahab actually positions. Yes, I think you I are verbed absolutely... wrong. <laughs> Look, it's it's um I, I I'm sorry that we we are experiencing the thing that happens to me all the time when I am writing, which is that um my I, I, I'm a slow handwriter, so my thinking runs ahead quickly than my hand. writing. Yeah, yeah. And and that causes me to make errors, which <laughs> makes me a slower writer. Uh, and I think that's happening to us with podcasting. There's just so much to talk about. I think God. it's happening to us with this chapter specifically, and I think part of it is that this chapter is just exposition, and that means that it lacks... It doesn't have actually a ton of forward momentum in the text itself, like... Uh, Ishmael yeah. dawdles in the rumors and the ocean and that discussion. And as you can see, there's no real structure to it to drive us forward. And so we're just going all over the place, which it's a clip show. That's what happens. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It really does feel like that. <laughs> that's so funny. Uh, okay, so um, next bit. Okay. So, um, sperm yeah, whales um, are big. We, we have gotten, we have the, the... <laughs> Whalemen have collectively given birth to the myth of Moby Dick. <laughs> That's just what happened. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's... I would say that they, they have collectively done it, but, you know, uh, there have been many a mighty birth here. That's true. And, and, and like, um... Oh, I think there is, like, one bit of this that I actually do want to mention. It's, like, a specific bit of, kind of, Ishmael's argument. Mm-hmm. Where, um... He, he he takes pains to state, I think, that basically, or, or rather, like, one of the things that I'm getting out of his argument about, like, the ships, uh, you know, and how often they encounter each other, is that there would have to actually be quite a lot 
of Moby Dick encounters before, like, a real understanding of Moby Dick as a phenomenon formed. Oh, yeah. Even though, like, the rumors are always growing, so on the one hand, any word of Moby Dick would go around quickly, but on the other hand, it's like, well, but people don't talk to each other that often. And, and not just that, everyone has the same story. Uh, something that I think is worth right. remembering is that Tashtego, Dagoo, and Queequeg all recognized Moby Dick from the most basic descriptions. And not only that, they suggested physical elements that weren't in that initial naming. The, which are the later physical elements being discussed in this chapter. And I also think that, um, like, part of what's going on here to some extent is, like, I think that what Ishmael is kind of trying to establish is, like, guys, Moby Dick is real. So, like, I need to make it clear to you that, okay, yes, whalemen are always, like, exaggerating and fabricating. Like, I understand that the stories about Moby Dick are totally outlandish, but, like, those stories wouldn't have happened without, like, a, a preponderance of actual Moby Dick encounters. Like, it's a little bit like a... Like someone who believes in UFOs, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there has to be something here. Look at all these parallel stories. I I think that's true. I think that the, the other element of this is that the sperm whale itself is a, like, the, the species is an object of interest, mm-hmm. and that's sort of the next section um, where... Yeah, yeah. Specifically, um, and I, I wanted to grab attention for this because uh, they mentioned Cuvier, who's a personal yes. uh, interest in uh, the history of science, specifically because uh, Baron Cuvier, um, can't remember his first name and don't care that much, it's, he wasn't an amazing person, but uh, what he did do in the uh, biological sciences is he proved the existence of extinction. Mm. The ending of species, which previously had been considered basically impossible, and in doing so, Cuvier effectively disrupted the concept of the great chain of being as a as a as an ordering mm. for the biological world to, to very briefly describe it right. the great chain of being is the idea that every organism that exists has to exist because it is part of a logical progression that maintains the entirety of the universe this was to put it very bluntly a way of explaining why if you have a creative god who is understood to be benevolent mosquitoes exist or generally the various vicissitudes of the ecosystem, uh, in a way... It's kind of... It's one of many explanations, of course. Yeah, well, this is interesting because I feel like I can see in this idea of the great chain of being certain roots of, like, what I now understand to be, like, you know, our current scientific understanding of, say, like, how ecosystems work, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, like, it's not the case that, like, I don't believe that, like, teleologically, mosquitoes must exist, right? Yeah. But I do believe that mosquitoes... Are an important uh, part of the ecosystem. Yeah, exactly. They they exist for a reason in the sense that, like, they serve a function in their their habitat, like, um, and it's, it's interesting to see, like, I'm thinking about basically the, the question of, like, why do certain animals and not others exist yeah. as, like, a philosophical one? Yeah, no, and, and I hadn't thought about it that way it before. Is, it's, it's really interesting. And the um, this idea of, uh, you know, in this case, what the qualities of the sperm whale are. Um, Cuvier is quoted as saying that all fish and sharks in the sea will flee the sperm whale with such alacrity that they might mm-hmm. kill themselves up on rocks. Um, like, this idea that the sperm whale is impossibly dangerous and powerful, and Cuvier himself credits it, though, um, quote, 
And however the general experiences in the fishery may amend such reports as these, uh, yet in their full terribleness, <laughs> uh, skipping a little bit, um, the superstitious belief in them is, in some vicissitudes of their vocation, revived in the minds of the hunters. So he's kind of taking the piss here, because he is saying, Cuvier claims this thing that <laughs> it's not true, but it's pretty cool, and it explains why people are, and it's like, it, it expresses the terror of the sperm whale, the danger of it. Um, but Cuvier himself yeah. is kind of getting made fun of, which is interesting. For... Uh, I'm so sorry, Ben. I have to interrupt you just because I've just spilled my tea. I need to like get up and clean yep, it up real quick. Understood. You should finish your sentence for the listeners, but then I will. We'll have to take a break. <laughs> understood. Okay. Uh, so the basic idea is that if Cuvier is being invoked here precisely because of his, um, I mean, both because he's a preeminent uh, pre- pre- uh, biologist of the period and. Uh, because of his sort of arguments for extinction, one could see it as the same kind of basic position that was taken in cytology of fuck off, categorization, fuck off, scientists. So, I think it's funny. And we're back. Sorry about that interruption, folks. I spilled some tea. Anyway, Ah, um... You've got the tea. Jesus Christ. I did, li- I did literally spill some tea is the thing. Uh, and, and I've, then been waiting, you... I've been waiting to unleash that. <laughs> God. The thing is that as I was physically spilling tea, you were describing the beef that you think Ishmael might theoretically have with Kufye. Yeah, like it's, You were it's, giving me the receipts on Kufye. It's highly hypothetical, and it's more likely that this is purely because Ishmael continues to want to take the piss out of scientists in general than because Ishmael specifically is mad about the great chain of being being struck down by the discovery of the Glyptodon or whatever. I mean, that's perfect, though, because what you're telling me is, you're like, yeah, I explained this really specific beef, like, this is the thing that, uh, you know, the believers in, like, the great chain of being have been calling Cuvier out for, but, like, I don't know if Ishmael is mad about that, or if he's just kind of pissed because, like, they run with these different crowds that hate each other, so, like... Yeah, that's tea. That's the tea. <laughs> I mean, like, I feel a little gross because that is appropriated aid. Mm, that is, but like, yeah. also, but again, this is physically specifically speaking. the gif of Kermit with tea. <laughs> yeah, God. <sighs> anyway, um, so uh, uh, having kind of gone through that little bit about, um, you know, the kind of existing like records of the terror of the sperm whale. Um, he, he's, he, he kind of goes on to say that, like, uh, basically because the fishermen are now hearing all these rumors about Moby Dick, who is, like, a terrifying killer sperm whale, they are starting to remember all these stories that have kind of gone out of fashion, uh, that are from when, like, sperm whales were first becoming a thing that people hunted, uh, which... Um, we've said before, I don't remember the exact time period, but maybe, like, the 1780s is roughly when that shift took place. So, like, it's been the case since before Ishmael was born that people prefer to hunt sperm whales and not right whales. But there are at least some people who are old enough to remember, oh yeah, sperm whale fishing used to be this new and dangerous thing. Like, maybe Moby Dick 
actually is that terrifying thing that once upon a time we thought was a sperm whale. Like, maybe Moby Dick is the thing man was not meant to hunt. There's also, um, it's also the case that, uh, according to Ishmael, whalers from various nations don't necessarily all hunt the sperm whale. Many of them uh, hunt in more northerly uh, whaling grounds and uh, primarily hunt the Greenlander right whale, and therefore their understanding of the sperm whale comes solely from the stories told by, specifically in Ishmael's mind, American or American crew, crewing, so, you know, all over the world, but they're shipping out on American ships, uh, whale, whale, sperm whalemen. So there's this sort of secondhand thing where I, I think it's a very cute sort of loop he's describing where these non-sperm whalemen hear these stories of a terrible sperm whale, and they think it's a particularly terrible, and then retransmit them back to potentially whalers going out after sperm whales. Mm, yes. Yeah, and so there is, like, a very... Uh, you can definitely see how, like, things would become inflated in the telling here. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but also, uh, God... When I think about this whole, like, concept of, like, what, what a sperm whale is, right? And, like, what nations of whalers hunt sperm whales. Ishmael must think that whoever the first person to kill a sperm whale was. First of all, I bet Ishmael thinks that person was an American, yeah. whether or not they actually were. And second of all, I guarantee you he thinks that guy is a fucking hero. Oh, yeah, he, he definitely thinks that guy just has the, the biggest dick. Sorry, I, I just... Like... He absolutely thinks nope. that person just, like, stood up to nature and was just like, I'm on to you. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm like... Uh, are we I'm, I'm thinking eroticizing about by the... proxy the first guy to kill a sperm whale on, for Ishmael's sake? I wasn't... <laughs> yeah, that is what you were doing, but it Whoops. was really cute. I do think you're right. He would have a crush on that guy. I mean, I think he kind of thinks that Queequeg, like, has that spirit, right? Mm, like, yeah. Um, uh... And to be fair, most but, of the, the harpooners and people who take out on the boats. Y- Ishmael yeah, is very I mean, general yes. in his affections. But especially <laughs> likes God. Uh, but, but yeah, um... Okay, so, uh... So that's the kind of, um... You know, the, the like, mythic status yes. of, the, of the sperm whale as of 1850. Um... And I will... There's also... Hmm? Oh, I was just going to say there's Please this specific line that to the people who think, there are still people who think that the sperm whale should not be hunted, quote, that um, that to uh, to chase and point lance at such an apparition as the sperm whale was not for mortal man, that to attempt it would be inevitably to be torn into a quick eternity. I just really love that phrase, torn into a quick eternity. Yeah. Um, and like, it it's definitely you know uh it is it is fun to have at this point in the narrative uh, a bunch of pe- a bunch of like statements from people being like kill a sperm whale kill Moby Dick it can't be done uh <laughs> um that's you know enjoyable mm-hmm. um so uh now we've also got yeah so so. So, uh, there's also a line that I, that is very ambiguous. Uh, it's, Ishmael has just, it's at the end of a paragraph. He's just, it's actually just after the sentence you just read. He's just described all the fears of, um, of sperm whales. And especially of Moby Dick as one. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and he then says, on this head, meaning, like, on this point that I'm discussing, there are some remarkable documents that may be consulted. The next chapter, ne- uh, the next se- paragraph, nevertheless, like, I'm sorry, what are the remarkable documents? Yeah, I think he's, hmm, I, I think that he's just saying that some people have written, like, books claiming that uh that it's impossible to hunt a sperm whale and those are the remarkable documents but it it is ambiguous yeah well the the thing is i i was hoping that that would be some sort of reference Mm. to some kind of text about Mm. the unkillability of the sperm whale uh i i did like a some quick research and i didn't find any like you know i didn't find any obvious citations that are like oh yeah everyone knows this is what this refers to so I mean, I think it's kind of up for debate or up for yeah. research. Um, it does kind of give you the impression of him referring to something specific, but yeah, it's, it, it could just I, I have no it idea. could just be him. It could just literally mean, you know, like there's fascinating stuff out there if you can just go and read. <laughs> just you know, uh, Google whale truth. <laughs> yeah, Google higgledy piggledy whale statements. <laughs> Please. Um, like, honestly, yes, though. Like, the vibe of this totally is, like, yeah, the whale truth is out there if you look, man. Like, they don't want you to know this, but the sperm whale is actually the most dangerous being on Earth. Leviathan <laughs> is real. Anyways, I, I am <laughs> biting back a terrible attempt to hum, not quite hum, the X-Files theme tune, but with the, with like, but with whale noises. And I'm not trying. I'm not God. doing that because it would just be terrible. It would have to be removed from the podcast, and the earth would have to be salted. But I want you to know, I thought I of do it. respect you. I respect you and your self control. Uh, I <laughs> <laughs> otherwise no comments. Yeah, fair enough. Um, uh, so, so uh, you know, um, the sperm whale being established as a unholy terror of the deeps. Let's talk about the one that may or may not be God. Right, so he's like, all right, but uh, here are the specifics on Moby Dick. Here's what we think about what we're going up against. On some level, um, here are his stats. <laughs> oh god, just a stat drop down, like a, a, a goddamn Fate Stay Night stat spread for Moby Dick. Uh, yeah, no, 100%. Like, we are hearing about what... We are hearing about Moby Dick's... Uh, uh, Fate Strange no Fake phantasms. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, um anyways, I uh, I need to make a cover image for this podcast that is like a like a five-star gotcha character but it's just the fucking whale woodcut. Oh, that's that's really good. I I do want to note that it is Okay, this is a really dumb fact that I know, but Moby Dick canonically exists in the Fate universe. Oh my god, of course. You know, I shouldn't be surprised. So does Frankenstein. Mm. By which I mean the monster. <laughs> you uh, mean Fran, uh, because Frankenstein <laughs> is is a girl who screams a lot in uh, fake stuff. But um, anyways, no, no. The the specific thing is that they use Moby Dick as an example of like a powerful phantasmal beast of the past, comparable to Typhon from Greek mythology, and that rules. That's amazing. That makes me very happy. Yeah, I love it That's, so much. And you know, okay, that makes me very happy. You know who I think it would also make very happy is Ishmael. Oh yeah, and also Herman Melville. <laughs> I think both of them would be absolutely delighted to hear 
Moby Dick described as... A divine super weapon, I believe is the actual phrase. In translation. Perfect. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. No, in my mind, I am time traveling to 1851, and I am hanging out with Melville, and I'm helping him get over Hawthorne, and I am telling him about uh, Fate Grand Order. (laughs) (laughs) And Strange Fake, and all the others. I think I think CCC is the one where you can see a giant whale that might be Moby Dick. Anyways, um, incredibly embarrassing fandoms aside, uh, I kid. I kid. yeah. Back to this. Uh, back to this much more embarrassing fandom. I mean, this one uh, is actual gay dudes. So <laughs> um, there's some. I, okay, I think that's a little no, unfair. No, it is, it, it is unfair. I think... There are certainly at least implicit gay dudes in Fate. Yeah, I guess, like, what I'm saying is, uh, uh, I do not think that Moby Dick is more homosexual than, like, the way that certain relationships are portrayed in fame. Uh, yeah, that's fair enough. Anyways, uh, Moby Dick's uh, noble phantasm, or possibly a special skill, ubiquity. Yes, so Moby Dick, according to rumor, is ubiquitous, i.e. can be anywhere on the planet at any time. Uh, I think it, it can also, in my brain, the way I read it, just because I have grown up with, like, you know, uh, science fiction media that has this sort of thing, I picture it as teleporting. Yeah, um, I mean... The, but it's, it's not... The phrase is, uh, the mystic modes whereby, after sounding to a great depth, he transports himself with such vast swiftness to the most widely distant points. That's teleporting. That's going down really deep in the water and... Wah. Yeah. Yeah, or, no, pretty much that's teleporting. It's just that uh, ubiquitous does suggest... Uh, like Yeah, that he's, he's bilocated, that he's everywhere. The question is, yeah, basically whether he can bilocate. And, and we haven't... Basically, no one knows for sure, because how could you? You couldn't test yeah, that, Yeah, you'd have right? to this see two at once. Rumor. And yeah, yeah, no, like you're saying, it's, it's rumor, and it's based on, like, figuring out, okay, you said you saw him on this date, but someone on the over in the Pacific whale grounds, like, thousands of miles away, said they saw him on, like, the day after. How is that possible? And I want to put forward what I think Ishmael is suggesting might be the rational and logical explanation for this. What is so he, he's talking about how, um, you know, nor is it to be gainsaid that in some of these instances it has been declared that the interval of time between the two assaults, because Moby Dick just attacks boats, uh, could not have exceeded very many days. Hence, by inference, it is believed by some whalemen that the Norwest Passage, so long a problem to man, was never a problem to the whale. And he goes on to talk about the idea that there are, um, uh, for example, mountains where in the lake up at the top of the mountain, shipwrecks from the ocean bob to the surface. He's suggesting that there are underground tunnels linking parts of the, of the world. Not only that, he is suggesting that, as in Star Wars, Episode 1, The Phantom Menace. The core of the planet is wormholed with ocean, and Moby Dick is able to get from place to place by swimming directly through the core of planet Earth. Like the oh my big, God. stupid fish in that movie. That is fucking incredible. I absolutely love it. I immediately accept this headcanon. Uh, no one will be able to tell me otherwise. Um, in fact, this is actually what I now believe about the real Earth. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I've, I've succeeded too much. 
<laughs> uh, yeah, don't you wish you had, like, a terrible purpose to shape me to right now? Because, like, you've got me eating out of the palm of your hand. Oh, man, where's my harpoon? Are you you want to kill God? Like... I mean... Are, are you doing anything later? <laughs> well, I should finish this podcast. Yeah. Uh, um, so... I... Yes. Sorry. Well, I, I, I absolutely love that image in so many ways. I mean, for one thing, like... There's, like, a long, okay, not as long necessarily as Moby Dick, but, but, maybe about that long. There's a decently long tradition of, like, stories about the center of the earth secretly having stuff in it, right? Like, that's a kind of a, um, like, a tradition of, I guess, like, occultism Mm. and, like... Yeah, lost, lost land stories, science fiction... Yeah, so so it's it's like it's kind of like sometimes it's like a a, a sort of earnest belief about the world, and sometimes it's it's like a, a concept that people use for like a pulp story or whatever. Um, but there's just like there's lots of stuff out there about like people secretly living underground, or specifically like I, the thing that I'm specifically thinking about is the idea that like the entire Earth is you know cored with tunnels. Mm-hmm. Um, it showed up in. Uh, Good Omens? Oh, yeah, I yeah, yeah, Good Omens as, had that. Uh, that was, I think, specifically the Theosophists who uh, had that underground yes. Agartha stuff and via magazines arrived yeah. to Good Omens. I remember specifically that it was, like, a, a New Age belief yes. about secret tunnel dwellers. Um, oh, but does. like it, it, it. Sorry, go on. <laughs> God. I mean, basically, I'm just saying the idea that there's, like... I mean, it's not a secret society because Moby Dick is very singular, but there is a a secret set of passageways in which some strange presence lurks under the earth. That's just a very compelling idea. Yeah, yeah. The the subterranean, in this case, the subaqueous, is quite impressive. And I, I, I the line that comes after is sort of him presenting this theory is these fabulous narrations are almost fully equaled by the realities of the whalemen. He's basically just saying whale truth is out there. Yeah. Um, so this, to some extent, makes me think of, like, some of the um, epistemological stuff that we've talked about before, like mm, with cytology, Yeah. where I think we kind of have talked about the idea that, uh, you know, he's, like, looking at, like, the entire epistemological structure of, like, science and, like, classification and saying, like, this is all bunk. This doesn't describe the reality of the whale. Yeah, um, yeah. And, like, he's kind of saying, instead, we need to understand the whale, like, first of all, experientially and, like, economically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we also need to understand the whale, like, poetically and symbolically. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and soon and you I think understand he... the whale religiously and ethically. That's right, yeah, and and I think that, uh, like, in a very real sense, like, this chapter is, like, you know, we talked about the idea that uh, Moby Dick was replacing the system of Linnaeus with this really nonsense one based on size, not so much because he, like, earnestly thinks that size is a meaningful way to categorize whales, and more because, like, It's no less meaningful than uh, Linnaeus. Exactly. And I think this right here, this chapter, is... Uh, is Ishmael actually showing what he thinks is a way to know what the whale is? I, you know? I think that's somewhat true, but I also think that he does consider Moby Dick a prodigy, and he is being cautious here. He is saying things like, you know, um, okay, 
ubiquity in space. Maybe there's this explanation. I've heard, there's these stories that could explain it. And it's definitely what I've heard about. And then ubiquity in time, which is what he describes as he describes immortality as ubiquity in time. Um, that no matter what you do to Moby Dick, no matter that he shows the signs of a dead whale, which is to say blood comes out of his spout as he spouts, you'll see him again. Moby Dick, who is not just a white whale, but has the specific shape to his jaw, the specific wrinkles in his head, the specific hump, so that you could not possibly have two whales that looked identical to that. Moby Dick will be yeah. seen again after supposedly being killed. And Ishmael is skeptical of this at this point in the narrative. He suggests yeah. that this is these qualities of Moby Dick that he's said to have are... At one of them he's willing to defend, but immortality, all he can say is, um, uh, is he can only call it a supernatural surmising. If it is true that Moby Dick is immortal and can die and reappear again, be ubiquitous in time, that can't be explained via underground tunnels through which water flows. That would just be yeah. supernatural. Yeah, I, you're right. I do think that, like, it, it is... I think there's a really fascinating, like, tension in uh, the way Ishmael talks about this, because I really think he wants to believe. I really think he wants to earnestly accept, like, this mythology of mm. Moby Dick. And, in, and in, in particular, like, a lot of this stuff comes across as, to, to me, like, if we are talking about Moby Dick as a as a divine figure, which I, I think is what we're doing well, at this we point. In literally a page, we're gonna get to that. Okay, yeah, no, well, well, you're right, we should keep going. But, but, but I, there, there's a lot of, um, it's complicated because, like, I have a lot of, uh, uh, notes from earlier in the chapter that point at ideas later in the chapter because this chapter is conceptually a whole. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm trying to scroll through my notes and also scroll through the chapter. It's, and it's, it's almost, it's a it, this chapter is definitely very coherent and self-referential it's as a linear piece of reading it makes you go back and check things yeah which, which is fun yeah uh, reading this chapter was really fascinating and enjoyable for me i had a great time with it I, yeah. i'm i i i assume people have kind of gotten that but like if you haven't read any of i i know there are people listening to us who are not reading moby dick um which i think is completely valid like i i have no problem with that happening i think I think Moby Dick is not actually something that is ruined by being spoiled, even though I'm enjoying trying to be as unspoiled for it as I can be. Um, and so I think basically if people want to just listen to the podcast without reading the book, totally an acceptable way to do it. But I also think you could actually just read this chapter because we've been talking about it's, it's, uh, it's clip show qualities, right? Yeah. I, um, yeah, I guess it would be, I'm Fun, not saying, certainly. I don't, I don't really know what it would feel like to just read chapter 41 of Moby Dick, but it the idea occurs to me. It would mean that you could say me, read Moby Dick, a chapter in Moby you Dick. You totally could. Because, yeah, the chapter's just called Moby Dick. You could say that in total honesty. Um, also, I just think that there might be people listening along who are aware of how um, fun the language is. Mm. And I, I guess what I'm kind of saying is, if if you want to do the equivalent of watching the highlights reel on YouTube of uh, Moby Dick. You could read this chapter, and that wouldn't be a terrible way to I do it. I also recommend reading the quarter deck, but I just... And, and the Lee Shore, because I love them so much. Yeah. 
That's totally fair. And, and yeah, actually, it might be the case that this chapter without the quarter deck is actually a little weird. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, it, it might depend on the quarter deck. I, you know, I'm just throwing ideas out there. I can't attempt any of these because I've already read the rest of the book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're definitely talking about the, a hypothetical reader who has no experiences in common with us as regards this chapter. <sighs> yeah, so, like, if you are that person, have fun, but also don't feel obligated to do any weird, dumb yep, thing yep. I told you to do about reading Moby Dick. Wait, no, no, totally anyway, feel um, obligated to do the weird, dumb things we tell you about reading Moby Dick. You, you can't just give <laughs> away power. <laughs> oh, my God. <sighs> well, anyway, um, <laughs> yeah. so he's kind of... The, the the tension that I wanted to talk about is that it, I do feel like um, there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of Ishmael saying things like, well, okay, I get that this is an unreasonable idea on the face of it, but if you think about the things that people have actually seen, it's not as wild as you think, you know? So he's not, yeah, he is not standing behind the fullness of the legend. Uh, He's not taking that, like, leap of faith. But he is, like, he is, like, He's uh, agnostic as to the whale. Yeah, that is really the state he's in. And and he, like, really needs you to understand that, like, believing in the whale is not... Unreasonable. Like, it yeah, is it's one, not totally It is, it is one of a number of possible places. Like, you can poo-poo the whale's uh, immortality or ubiquity um, according to your principles of the world, but you still don't have an ability to explain the whale. Yeah, you know, it's honestly... It does make me think of, like, certain, uh, like, I guess what you could call, like, quote-unquote, theist arguments. These are, like, arguments that are designed for, Arguing like, with atheists Christians. and are generally focused in Christian tradition, but are pretending to be purely uh, a-traditional, like, purely generic yeah, pro-God so- stuff. Yeah, so, you know, the, the like, watchmaker argument that people tend mm-hmm. to make. That would be about, Paley, that is me- he first made that argument in, I want to say, the 1830s. Yeah, and uh, and, and that, you know, uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I think you can just Google watchmaker yeah, argument. Sure I don't can. feel like explaining it. Anyway, the point is, um, it does feel a little bit like, uh, you know, like, oh, but look at this natural phenomenon. You can't explain that without God. Like... Well, hmm. look at all this stuff that happened. You can't explain that without Moby Dick. But I'm not saying that that's actually what... I feel like what Ishmael is doing, basically, is arguing for the existence of Moby Dick in the way that people argue for the existence of God with atheists, which is to say he's not arguing for the full spiritual nature of Moby Dick that, like, your average whaleman experiences, right? So he is not trying to tell people to go out there and experience the ecstasy Hmm. of swearing the oath to Ahab, but he is trying to convince you that maybe, you know? hmm, Like, actually, maybe something kind of like Moby Dick exists? I I don't know, I think, I don't know if I believe you on that, or I don't know if I agree with you on that. Believe you is the wrong word. Um, I I really think Ishmael himself is torn between these two possible, between possibilities. I think Ishmael is trying to account for this intense spiritual sensation that he's getting, that he's getting from Ahab, that we still haven't gotten to, um, that is accounting for his sort of place in the world and his approach approach to Moby Dick. Um, And I think an example of this is that some of these rumors are totally material rumors. They're not in any way um, mystical, although there's these supernatural possibilities, but there's also simply the fact that Moby Dick seems to be malicious. Moby Dick will draw a whale ship on 
and then turn around and attack rather than just fleeing. Moby Dick appears to know yeah. what a whaling ship is and actively be out for blood. And this leads in, in Ishmael's account, to how Ahab lost his leg. Yes. Yes. Which is by being um, a so yeah, giant we should... badass. <laughs> yeah. God, that's good stuff. All right. So, so yeah, I think you're right. Let's table the question of like, what actually, what does Ishmael believe exactly at this moment in time? On some level, that's always really going to be a matter of headcanon, right? Because uh, that slippery little bastard doesn't actually make himself. Well, we know he's a universalist. Uh, But about Moby Dick, (laughs) I'm not asking about whether he believes in God. I don't care about that. Okay. Okay. I'm going to ask, I'm going to start asking, like in the same way that people like treat do you believe in God as, like, maybe a kind of edgy yeah. conversation starter? I'm going to treat do you believe in Moby Dick the same way. Yeah, I mean, um, look, here's the thing. I, I may be expressing that I think uh, Ishmael is skeptical, but I am totally prepared to believe in Moby Dick in precisely the way Ahab believes in Moby Dick. Yeah, I, yeah, well, let's talk later. Yes. Like, uh, I want to, I want to keep going with the podcast, but I do want to talk about how plausible we actually think Moby Dick <laughs> I is. I think because... that that is going to be a question that can only be answered by the end of the book, because I think that is the question of the book. I mean, yeah, but I mean, like, as of the information yeah, we enough. have so far. Yep, yep. I think it's worth, I think it's worth taking stock. Anyway, you want to do fan um, things. You want to fan out. Very Yes. Cool. Also, is that a whale pun? It wasn't intended as one, but now it is. You made it this. <laughs> this is your fault. Oh, <laughs> no. I'm snowing on myself. Okay, so... Oh, God. I, let's, right, so, can, so, I, can I set the scene for this one? Please. Ishmael is describing the events of how Ahab came to be Ahab. Before, he was merely the yes. shadow of Ahab. You know, he had that imperial brain, but now he has something to occupy it. He was involved in a chase for Moby Dick, and Moby Dick turned. That seems to be the implication. The, um, uh, the, uh, quote, infernal aforethought of ferocity of Moby Dick was on full display, and, uh, his three boats stove around him, and oars and men both whirling in the eddies. Ahab looks at the whale which has attacked, and three boats full of men, boats being the smaller, um, the smaller whaling boats that set out with oars and small sail from the larger ship to chase the whale with harpoons. You don't harpoon from the deck of the larger whaling ship. Um, So these small Mm -hmm. boats have been destroyed, and Ahab is in among the wreckage, and I love this description, uh, amid the chips of chewed boats and the sinking limbs of torn comrades, they swam out of the white curds of the whale's dial for wrath into the serene, exasperating sunlight that smiled on as if at a birth or a bridal. So we have here this image of total, excuse me, total uh, amorality of nature, a total uh, um, indifference of the world to the wrath that is visited upon these whalemen by Moby Dick, which does not merely flee as a whale might or fight when injured, but will draw them on and then turn and maliciously destroy them with that, that infernal aforethought. And Ahab, among this wreckage, seeing his men dying or dead and himself stranded in the boat, picks up a line knife that is meant to cut the rope when it, uh, if the boat seems to be about to be dragged under by the whale. And he pitches himself across, the, across this wreckage at Moby Dick's eye. With six inches yes. of steel, 
Or as it's blindly seeking with a six-inch blade to reach the fathom-deep life of the whale. There's nothing he can do to Moby Dick. Even if he stabbed Moby Dick through the eye, he would not be able to reach Moby Dick's brain. His arm is not long enough. His knife is not sharp enough. This is why you need a harpoon. And Moby Dick just turns his head and with his crooked jaw cuts off Ahab's leg. He doesn't, like flail or strike Ahab, he just, like, uh, I believe like a surgeon, it's described, he, no, it's as a mower uh, a blade of grass in the field, Moby Dick had reaped yeah, away I, Ahab's leg. I, I like that metaphor a lot because, like, the specificity of it is, it really emphasizes the enormous difference in size, mm, right? Yes. Like, you said, like, a surgeon, you wanted to emphasize the preciseness of it, and it is precise, but it's also huge. This is a scythe slicing a single yes, blade of grass. Yes, there is no reason Ahab should be alive. He has been dismembered when he should have been destroyed. And that, I think, is a meaningful part of the malice of the whale. He is brought low, he is dismasted, but then the whale swims off. He has been, you know, injured yeah. horribly. And, in fact, we have seen from his behaviors on the deck that he cannot walk normally on his ship. He has to have special holes uh, drilled. He has been disabled by the whale when all around him men were killed and it would take and it seems far more specific and careful of Moby Dick to injure him and leave him in humiliation um and yeah this you know this does some things to Ahab's brain yeah yeah so yeah um oh. this is this is like a powerfully this is a powerfully transformative experience for Ahab. Like I, you know, I, I think that it is a, it is a cliche sometimes for people to say like, oh, this fiction is all about trauma, but this is, this is a trauma very directly. This is a depiction of a, a literal traumatic event happening to someone. And it is all about the specific process by which that injury, but also like, the meaning of it, right? Because it's oh, very yes. clear this entire time that the reason Moby, that Moby Dick, the reason Ahab is not well is not primarily that, like, something's wrong with his leg, yeah. you know? Like, there is a sense, maybe, that, like, yeah, his leg physically healing is also a complicated and painful process, and that's part of all of this. But, like, Ahab, so he is disabled, but he's... He's, he's perfectly capable of, of doing everything he did before, just with this reminder. He is healed in as much as you could be from losing a leg, physically speaking, mm-hmm. right? Um, but, uh, like, the, the, um, clearly, you know, as, as, like, Ishmael basically goes into in detail, uh, this maddens him. And I wanted actually to say something about this earlier. I used the word crazy. Um, I want to, like, actually talk slightly yeah. about that for yeah. a second. Um, because I don't normally i try not to use words like crazy or insane casually um because i am mentally ill and that's something that i've uh you know really struggled to not feel a deep amount of shame about and um so you know when people say that like oh the roads were crazy today or did you see like what trump said it was so crazy like Things like that that associate the state in which I live with, like, evil yeah. suck for me. But on the other hand, 
this is very literally talking about someone experiencing mental illness. Like, this was written before the field of psychology was founded, so it is written in a different kind of language. But um, it is talking about someone, like, experiencing a trauma and a, a mental breakdown and sort of a, a breakdown of self mm-hmm. and having to reconstruct an understanding of who he is and what his life's purpose is after that event, which is like transformed and much, much more painful than the person who lived before this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, but also, and this is always the thing with Ahab, like he is transformed and like in deep pain and like it's, it's a tragedy what's happened to him, but he is also like powerful. He oh, is yes. galvanized. The, the thing that is in him, the thing that has grown in him is very strange and like energetic. It's the, the text spoke earlier of a galvanic energy of his hatred that if he could truly unleash it from his body, it would strike everyone around him dead and leave him purposeless. Like Ahab's, yeah, Ahab's rage, his hate, his, I, I think it is fair to say in this context, his madness is, it is a vital force. It is a presence that moves in him. And I, Honestly, I think that uh, Ahab is obviously not. I mean, I, the, there's a description of uh, Ahab as um, uh, all his means are sane, his motive and his object mad. He is extremely, uh, he is extremely unable to decide otherwise than to pursue the white whale. He is absolutely obsessed. He is he is maddened by this. But at the same time, he has a very good argument for why that should be so. Like, I don't want to take yeah. away from, you know, the understanding that Ahab is is mentally ill or is is crazy in that sense. He's literally called in the text Crazy Ahab. But it's not in the context of, of either pity or shame. This is in the context of describing his theology of the whale. Yeah, I think one of the things that is... Uh very clear in 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 the depiction of ahab that we see here um is that like although ishmael is you know he is aware that this is madness and that madness is like terrifying and dark but i don't know that ishmael believes that this is either like i i think that ishmael cannot prove that ahab's worldview is either factually or morally incorrect. Yes. Does no, that make I, sense? I 100% agree. I think that you can read this as Ishmael being under Ahab's influence, where, in fact, we'll, we'll get to this, but Ahab is fully aware that his obsession is irrational. But yeah. th- this, this is um, what it means to say that he is his uh, means are sane, but his motives and his objects mad. Ahab is well aware that what he has decided to do is, like, he just has no say in it anymore. It's just what his mind wants and what he knows is true in such a way that he cannot gainsay it. And I think that on some level, Ishmael is feeling that exact same sort of strain where he's becoming convinced of something that, if it is true, makes the entire world intelligible in a way that completely blows apart everything else. And the way he understands yeah. the world is this. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll quote the line. Um, actually, would you like to read from All That Maddens and Torments? 
Yeah, yeah, let me see. Um, yeah, yeah, I think I, I see what you're saying here, yeah. All that most maddens and torments, all that stirs up the lees of things, all truth with malice in it, all that cracks the sinews and cakes the brain, all the subtle demonisms of life and thought, all evil to crazy Ahab were visibly personified and made practically assailable in Moby Dick. He piled upon the whale's white hump the sum of all the general rage and hate felt by his whole race from Adam down, and then, as if his chest had been a mortar, he burst his hot heart's shell upon it. Um, and like, I think that, yeah, as you say, Ishmael is extremely compelled by this on the level that, like, if, essentially, all the evil in the world that ever existed, like, every suffering that anyone has mm -hmm. ever had... Especially, I think, every, like, uh, sort of, um, unfair, unnecessary, pointless suffering, well, you know? It's every, the, um, the malicious every... agencies which some deep men feel eating in them till they are left living on with half a heart and half a lung. That intangible malignity. Yes, it's, it's just the way the world is bad. It is the wrongness in things. Yeah, and, and like, he, uh, and in this paragraph... Ishmael pretty explicitly identifies this wrongness with um, Satan. With yeah. Satan, and and with and I think I think Ishmael does strongly believe that this wrongness, that this evil force, exists in some I think, way. I think I, the, the the line he has is the intangible malignity which has been from which has been from the beginning to whose dominion even yes. the modern Christians ascribe one half of the worlds. So yes, he's very much framing it as. In this world, there are evils, and it is very easy for someone to see those evils and assume they have an agency and a force, and Ahab has identified that force with Moby Dick. And I think this is complicated, because I don't know that Ishmael himself believes in Satan. Mm, so Ishmael believes that there is evil in the world and that you can sort of locate that evil in a single point, but that you cannot say whether or not the evil like has a will. I don't know if he thinks it can be it can be found in a point. I think the the difference is you either if you believe in Well, but he's he, oh, Sorry, go on. Okay, so I guess this I think this really comes down to how we read specific ways he phrases the sentence. Mm -hmm. Um which is ah the shit one loves to get into on the <laughs> on the American literature podcast. Uh so when he says that intangible malignity to whose dominion even the modern Christians ascribe. Does he mean that concept you all know of, of Satan? Or does he mean that thing that totally exists that so we all I, know about? I Satan? want to suggest another thing, which is the intangible malignity. I think what he means is when he says all truth with malice in it, all that cracks the sinews and cakes the brain, I think he means that there is unhappiness and pain in the world and that malignancy, that sense that the world is not enough and is incomplete, which previously he has referenced in the context of eventual salvation from this world in his universalism. He is recognizing... Oh, so what you're... Sorry, yeah? What you're kind of saying here is that, yeah, yeah, because the intangible malignity, it's intangible, yeah. so it's not Satan. It, it doesn't become Satan until you personify it as the ancient Ophites of the East. I was waiting to is... say Ophites. You've said Ophites. It's the magic word. I get to talk about Ophites now. <laughs> so, 
No, no, we shouldn't. Well, we'll, we'll wait, Shut we'll wait. But I am going to talk about it. No, 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 we can talk. I don't think there's any reason to wait. I mean, unless, like, did you have, like, something more specific mm. to say about Satan? Or can we go- move on to what he's doing with the Ophites? Because that's also about Satan. It is Satan. also about Satan. It is so much about Satan. Okay, so. Uh, because the way he... I, I think I should just... Desc- I think what I would like to do, if you're okay with yes. the structure, is get across what Ishmael thinks the Ophites yes. are. And then you can explain what the Ophites actually well, were. Well, I'll explain what we know about the Ophites. Right. Of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course. No. No. We but don't and, know and that's important that because the short version: the Ophites are mostly rec- referenced in collections of heresies. Yeah. Um. I. I think. Oh God. I will read you. How about this? I want to read what he actually says about the Ophites, but I also want to read you the citation on oh, PowerMobyDick.com because. I do love Power Moby Dick. It helps me a lot, but I do think that this citation is very funny. Okay. Uh, I think yeah, you'll yeah, enjoy do. it, Ben, because it's very simple. Anyway, um, so the thing that he's saying about the Ophites is that they, what he literally says is that intangible malignity, blah, 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 malignity which the ancient Ophites of the East reverenced in their statue devil. So uh, 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 Ahab did not fall down and worship it like them. So he's saying the ancient Ophites of the East worshipped Satan in the form of yeah. a statue. And um, the the citation says, Ophites, a religious sect from about 100 AD who believed that the serpent who tempted Adam and Eve was the story's hero and God its villain. So that's correct as far as it goes. Um, <laughs> so the Ophites... Are, um, were a Gnostic sect. It's Gnosticism hours. <laughs> okay, so the Ophites were an actual That's Gnostic right. sect. Um, they are also called the Ophians in the uh, heresiology of Irenaeus, uh, which is one of the major sources they come from and which has a, a long uh, story about them. And I've mostly, to be clear, been like checking up on this on Wikipedia. I've looked at a few of the uh, texts that, the, that, are, that also reference the serpent, such as the hypostasis of the archons or uh, on the origin of the world, which are a number of Gnostic works that we do have surviving in places like the Nag Hammadi Library. Um, this makes me sound way more uh, knowledgeable about Gnostics than I actually am. I should note that I haven't done serious reading on Gnostics. I've done a lot of internet uh, research and picked up a lot of stuff here and there. Uh, Gnosticism being a collection of various early Christian ideas that didn't make it into the canon and then were later abhorred by uh, sort of uh, heresiologists uh, means that there's a lot of them. They have some uni- universal qualities, uh, specifically a Gnostic uh, position, generally speaking, reveres gnosis, that is to say, a certain kind of secret knowledge which allows salvation as opposed to salvation via faith or a connection to uh, Jesus. And secondly, although they often did care a lot about a connection to Jesus as a teacher of secret knowledge, and then, mm. yeah, and, and often as the, as a, like, you know, Jesus is still an incarnate divinity whose job was to spread this secret knowledge that allows people to escape the prison world. Because the Gnostics often right. believed that the that they, generally speaking, believed that the physical world was a prison and a problem. That it was built in ignorance and was either imperfect or actually evil. And that the creator of the world, the god of Genesis, was in fact 
the demiurge, the, the entity who created this world imperfectly because it either did not know or chose to ignore higher divine truth and thus trapped the souls of all who exist within this world that kind of sucks or outright is awful. Mm -hmm. And so this is the general framework of, of um, Gnosticism. And so you can see how within that framework, the serpent in the Garden of Eden becomes a heroic figure because uh, whether this is the feminine principle of wisdom, Sophia, embodied within the serpent in order to communicate through, a, through just an animal of the earth, this important idea that if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will uh, become equal to, uh, you know, God, but in this case, equal to the Demiurge, Eyal Dabuath, whatever you want to call them, who created this world and now fears that humanity will overcome or extend beyond them, often specifically fearing feminine humanity uh, or Eve, who is in some, in, for example, I believe in the hypostasis of the uh, Archons, which is to say the reality of the rulers, um, the rulers being the powers and forces of of God, of the Demiurge that maintain this world and want to keep people in ignorance, uh, who are afraid when a human, basically the first human woman is manifested by Sophia to be a helpmeet to Adam and together to find a way out of this uh, dreadful ignorance. So that's the general Gnostic framework that we're working with and the Ophites exist within. And now, uh, Irenaeus, who did not like the Ophites, um, gives an account of their uh, cosmology that is actually quite interesting. Um, it's, you know, it's this sort of elaborate series of uh, emanations from uh, deep, uh, you know, from the Godhead, basically, that eventually construct, uh, you know, the world, which is this sort of trap for Sophia wisdom, and then her offspring, um, I mean, not quite a trap. Sophia accidentally creates the world by interacting with the still waters um, that, you know, the, the still waters of Genesis when God moved on the surface of the waters. Um, Sophia, inter Sophia is the offspring of divine emanations in the, uh, the upper world. She basically falls into the water and in playing in them and interacting with them, accidentally uh, gets herself basically soaked in materiality and thus the world manifests around her and she and her ideas are trapped. And in fact, the specific uh, idea from Irenaeus's account of the Ophites is that Sophia is the sky. She was able to arch herself above the world to create the star-filled sky, but was unable to actually escape back into pure idea and, uh, and sort of the presence of the divine. Um, now the, uh, the Demiurge is formed, creates the world. The Demiurge, Ayal Dabawath, is, you know, kind of a big asshole. Uh, he hides the truth of his mother and of higher reality from humans and from the world in order to make himself their king. And the serpent, who is eventually, you know, possessed of this gnosis, tells Adam and Eve to eat the fruit and gain knowledge of good and evil so that they can begin their work towards uh, salvation, so they can acquire this gnosis. Um, that's generally the Ophites. However, there's a second part, which is that the Ophites specifically trace their as a as a sect, separately from other Gnostic groups, supposedly considered the serpent to be either identical to or equal to Christ. And their reference for this was the brazen serpent raised by Moses in the desert when... Um, 
some Israelites pissed off God and he sent fiery serpents to murder them. They asked Moses and Moses asked God to maybe stop getting them killed with serpents. And so he was told to raise up a brazen serpent on a, on a crucifix, effectively, on a crossbar that would, uh, as long as people looked up to it, they would be spared from the murder by serpents. Uh, so in this particular context, the, uh, their statue devil was in fact, um, Moses's brazen serpent, a, um, ah. at least that's what I believe is going on here, uh, which they considered to be so, equivalent so, to or equal to Christ. So that is, that brazen serpent is a crucified serpent. Sort of. Right? It's a ser- it's, it's, sort of? when I've seen depictions, it's a serpent sort of draped across a crossbar. Yeah, okay. So it is a it is a serpent that is in some way on some wood. I guess that's yeah. kind of like being crucified. Uh, serpents don't have Yeah, limbs. no, crucifying a serpent seems slack. very difficult. You just do it on a stick, actually, like just a straight bar. Yeah. Um Okay, so so we have this sort of crucified serpent and the serpent also is the serpent from the garden. Yeah, right? or is, it, is is associated with it. Generally, the serpent is the right. symbol of wisdom. And now here's the thing I really want to get to, because here's the other thing Ophites are known for in the Heresiologies. There's a thing mm-hmm. called the Ophite Diagrams, referenced in uh, Celsus and his opponent Origen in various... Origen? I don't know. Um, in various accounts of, um, of Heresiology and of... Uh, these sects. And the Ophites are specifically famous for their um, diagram, which we don't have any copies of, but which was described. And in one of them, uh, quote, let me get this. Ah, yes. Uh, Celsus, this is from Wikipedia, but I've I've seen elsewhere as well arguing this, uh, describing this. Celsus describes them as ten separate circles, circumscribed by one circle, which is the world soul, titled Leviathan. Yeah, I know. So, Hell yeah. the Ophites, who believe, who are Gnostics, who believe that knowledge is the, this, this important thing, and moreover, who believe that there is, that, you know, who set themselves against God in a certain sense, or believe God is this force of, let's say, unfairness, inequity, who's created a material universe that is fundamentally unfair and cruel, and it mm-hmm. is by transcending it or striking against it, the world soul is Leviathan. God. So, so, like, so the, so, so it is, hold up. The world I don't soul, know. because, like, okay, so this actually gets into something that I thought of earlier, um, and and I think now is the time. I think we have reached the point. I've been wondering when to drop this on you, because this is an an idea that hit me while I was reading the text, and I, it really just, so, I was trying to think about the different, uh, kind of symbolic bodies of Moby Dick that are being evoked here, right? Because, Mm. uh, we've been talking a lot about, like, how much does Ishmael really believe this? How much does he think this is all superstition and rumor? And I think one way of kind of cutting through that conversation is to talk about not so much, like, what does he literally believe in that kind of simplistic way? And talk about, like, what are these different narratives to him, right? So what are the Mm. different forms of Moby Dick that we are evoking? I think that Moby Dick has uh, three primary uh, symbolic bodies. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... There's Moby Dick, the physical whale, that definitely exists and is covered in harpoons. 
That on yes, its own and has is... these particular and specific physical appearance. Yes, and that creature itself, like Ishmael, is at pains to establish that creature. You know, he needs us to understand that there is a material Moby Dick, and it does have these certain qualities, and like it, it, it is as though perhaps we were establishing the historical fact that there was a person named Jesus of Nazareth, right? Mm-hmm. So there's that. Perhaps we might call that the sun. Then there is the spiritual entity that has that that may or may not exist behind the whale, which might be Satan, right? Um, mm-hmm. The 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 total of like all the cruelty that exists in the world that is visited upon mankind. Let's call that the father. And then there is this legendary being. There is the body of Moby Dick as it is spoken by whalemen. And, like, that is a a creation. Like, that actually had to be given birth to. Oh, I might have fucked it up. Maybe the physical... Oh, you meant... The first one, did you mean the... You meant the uh, the father, the spirit, and this one would be the son? I don't know. Well, the thing is... Okay, there's the legendary Moby Dick, which is symbolically birthed by sailors. We need to not forget that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That happened. But there's also the physical Moby Dick. And and those are actually two separate things. Um, Yes. I, I think that it makes a little more sense to me that the spirit adjacent one is the one that exists in legend just because like Mm -hmm. that's the thing that is present when you are feeling the spirit in ahab's church right and that is also like the thing that imminent imminently exists in the soul Hmm. of every whaler um rather than being either physically present in the whale or sort of spiritually present everywhere as like satan would be Mm mm-hmm so yeah, I am I, saying that I think there is a sort of reverse trinity at work here. I think that's fascinating. I, I think it is complex. I think, I would. I think that first of all, my understanding of what the Ophites meant by the world soul in their diagram is that this is the powers and realities of the world that we are in are circumscribed by Leviathan, and then there is separately. Um, you know, the pleroma, the fullness of God, which is the immaterial and ideal state that is separate from this world. So I think, I think that Mm -hmm. the Moby Dick that is malignant and everywhere, the Moby Dick that is uh, ubiquitous in both time and space is the world, like the physical world we exist in. Mm -hmm. And what Ahab is saying is that the world is evil, that the physical existence we, we live within, all truth with malice in it, is an unacceptable monster, and it must be slain. Like, on some level, Ahab is saying there's no truth without malice in it. I I don't think that's true. Or not necessarily... Sorry, sorry. You're right. That's a a different statement than the one I actually meant to make, because I don't think... I don't know whether or not Ahab believes in a higher truth beyond physical reality. He may believe in that. Get to that! But uh, what I meant to say is I think that Ahab does see, like, this world as, in some sense, wholly false, right? Like, wholly cruel. I think he he sees it as the wall that he is thrust near to in the form of the whale. Right, exactly. So it's like, it's not that Ahab doesn't understand... Oh, shit! Ben, this is why he's like this. Um, It's not that he doesn't understand that the sunset is, is beautiful. It's just that he's looking at it and he's like, yeah, this is a pasteboard mask. Like, wow, I, I'm so entertained by this fake sunset. Yeah, I mean, he, he knows that it is beautiful, but he also sees that behind everything is something he cannot entirely see, but he means to stri- strike beyond it. In fact, 
you might say that he is fundamentally Gnostic in the sense that he sees the world around him as a uh, as a material uh, entrapment in which he has been forced. And I think the fact that he has this physical injury that is so visible in him is important to that. And yeah. he, by his higher qualities, hopes to, in some way, well, he hopes to strike the white whale, and in doing so, perhaps there is something behind the white whale, perhaps there is not. And that is where we get atheism. That is where we get a possibility that the white whale is just an awful whale within an awful world, and there is nothing outside of it. And if that is true, Ahab will still strike the white whale. because. But he refuses to believe that there is not a malice that directed this thing, that there is not some yeah. kind of intelligence to the world that Ahab can personally be at war with. Yeah, yeah. I, I also think, like, I think it's fascinating to think about, like, um, because the idea of like there are there are so there are a couple of different like types of evil in the world that we're thinking about here you know like because we are discussing mm -hmm. the nature of what the evil in the world is so there's all these different ways we're imagining that it could be so it could be that like it could be that the world is uh evil basically by chance right like bad weather happens because of like weather patterns and it's their material it is material and yet it is insufficient yeah and and it's like well that is bad but you also cannot really perhaps there is no intelligence you can blame for it so maybe you can't call this immoral but you can i think say that it is like a. you can look at the world and say you can dislike it exactly and, and i think that like part of ahab's situation to me seems to be that he might be kind of dimly conscious of the idea that maybe it is just a material world. And I think he's just as angry at it if it is. Oh, yes. He'd it's strike like, the sun if it insulted him. Right. And I think, like, it just... It, it's like, if it really is the case that, like, the world just happens to suck this much, like, people's legs just get fucking scythed off by the devil, um, and no one even is forcing it to be that bad... Like, that itself is infuriating. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think, I, I do want to say that I don't, I don't like to call Moby Dick the devil because I think that on some level, Moby Dick is much more aligned with God. In this, in this narrative, there's never this sense of there is one entity on your side and then there's this other yeah. malicious entity. There's always a unity to this where even yes. though, a, uh, sorry, Ishmael frames this as though there were a duality, that half the world is evil and half the world is good. And, you know, there's, you know, he's suggesting a dualist thing where perhaps, uh, you know, the serpent of the Ophites and the, um, and presumably Ishmael's own god are the two forces at work here. Only the, o the Ophites chose to, you know, turn to the devil. But I don't think that's actually what Ahab believes. And I don't think that's how, in fact, Ishmael is talking about this. I think he's talking about why is the world like this? And funnily enough, Starbuck, the you know the the token Orthodox Christian, and it's not Orthodox Christian, you know what I mean, the token mainline Protestant, he's the one saying, no, it's just how the world is. You can't get mad at a, at a whale. It doesn't have any any conscience behind it. It doesn't have any uh, decision making or moral capabilities. And it's really funny to me that the one who is most Christian is also the one arguing effectively for a naturalistic worldview. That 
the whale can just be bad. It doesn't have to be bad on purpose. And Ishmael refuses that position. I mean, yeah. sorry, not Ishmael. Oof, Ahab. Ahab refuses that position. He doesn't refuse it immediately. It takes him some time. There's a line here that I really love, which is, um, uh, it, you know, as he's, um, travel, you know, first he feels only pain. His leg has been torn off by a whale. But then in the hammock, in the storms, as the boat is slowly making its way back to New England, the, the ship that he's on, that he, it, then it was that his torn body and gashed soul bled into one another, and so interfusing made him mad. And what I like about that so much, first of all, is that it's amazing as just a sentence. Uh-huh. But secondly, it's that it's specifically in the intermingling of the physical and spiritual that Ahab becomes possessed by his determination. It is yeah. in this interconnection between body and soul where what I think it is fair to say about Ishmael and to perhaps even a greater extent Starbuck uh, is that they both discount the morality of the embodied world and it, yes. or at least Ishmael doesn't discount it. He's coming around to the position now that he's sworn the oath but he's he's only describing it from the outside he's talking about ahab you know in the you know over there ahab's like this and whoa he's he's not well um yeah Starbuck, i mean, i, I oh, have sorry, to say on. like the the thing that's just screaming out at me as you say this and and like again i feel bad for bringing it back to trauma because it's a cliche mm -hmm. but like yeah. we are talking about the different ways that you view the world when you have experienced trauma and you know the things that you learn when, like, something has been done to you that is completely unacceptable, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that is clearly what has happened to Ahab. He's, he's... Yes. And it is also, I think, just as clear, even though I can't honestly say that, like, Ishmael started the book Suicidal. We know that Starbuck has lost family in, in the most, like actual understanding of like the modern use of the term both of them have experienced traumas but clearly neither of them has ever experienced anything like what ahab has here right um yeah and if i may i think this is partially because ahab is a superior soul he is supposed he is this uh brilliant and deep mind he is well attuned to the tragedy of the world and so when it comes you know, when the whale is thrust close to him, when he charges it with a knife in a moment of uh, desperation or madness or revenge, he is able to sort of think through... This is partially why I think that the book is leaning towards a Gnostic interpretation. I don't think it is simply presenting Ahab, as is often presented in high school classes, purely delirious and incorrect, though the book insists that he must be. I yeah. think that the book is opening the door here to this idea that the world is wrought evilly and that it is unacceptable, that the, the evil of the world, to oppose it, is perhaps, well, we'll see if it succeeds, but to oppose it is perhaps valiant. Perhaps Ahab is in fact virtuous despite the fact that he is mad. Yeah, yeah, and, and um, I also, uh, I think that, like, I, I want to propose sort of a, like, a hierarchy of how much people here are thinking their worldviews through, right? <laughs> um, and it has to do, to some extent, with, like, willingness to, like, fully believe in the supernatural. So, mm -hmm. uh, this is a, this is a pro-supernatural argument here. Yes. Um, and, and, again, that is one of the big arguments in Moby Dick, is 
is the whale supernatural or is it merely uh you know a dumb animal as you might put it yeah yeah so this is me pulling for the supernatural position um mm-hmm. i'm i'm going to start with what i will call like the the sort of least uh uh least fully thought through worldview of this group which is starbuck sorry he's here to be that right yeah like, he's here to be conventional he's not yes. attempting anything new and and like and i think that he shows one of the dangers of conventionality which is that if you accept the beliefs that you've been taught as a child, you can't necessarily think through, like, the ways in which they may be inconsistent. So, like, if he is such a Christian, right, the Mm -hmm. idea that maybe Satan is at work should not be outlandish to him. It should actually be believable. Like, he does have... I'm not trying to say Uh, that... I mean, I think... Sorry, go on. So I'm not trying to argue that any 19th century Christian would have to just accept any kind of idea of miracles, like, uh, at, at first blush. But I am saying that I think the specific way in which Starbuck dismisses the idea of Moby Dick's supernatural power is a totally conventional dismissal. He is not taking it on its merits. He is not evaluating it to say, oh, is this... I think that's true, but I don't think it's. I don't think that the the existence of sort of supernatural evil is the thing that really drives home for me the the issue with Starbuck. It's Star, because Starbuck is presenting an idea of providence and of a naturalistic world, a deistic world almost, in which mm. nature is simply this mute machine that does not uh, does not represent any will. And where there's inconsistency here is not so much the possibility of Satan, in my opinion. But merely the fact that if providence is in fact the will of God, which suffuses the world, and things are driven by that, then what he has to do, like Starbuck, gestures at this. He start he gropes at it. The idea that there is something blasphemous, not just silly or ridiculous or stupid or dangerous, but blasphemous in Ahab's pursuit of the whale. Starbuck vaguely understands that yes. to say that nature has an evil in it is to say that God has wrought a world with evil in it separate from humanity. And I think that's also important. The whale is in no way a create... Unless you're willing to say that, oh yeah, sin means that whales are assholes now. Or unless you're willing to believe... uh, Unless you're willing to believe that Moby Dick has been created by rumor, which I think is, like, outlandish, Mm. obviously, from, like, a a literal point of view, right? Because I'm kind of saying that, like, just the power of belief summoned up a supernatural entity. But also, I I read a lot of fantasy novels in the 90s, and that's what (laughs) happens in all of them, so... Yeah, I just... Um. I'll be on... Yeah, no, I... I... I really don't think that is even a little bit within Ishmael or really this book's... No, no, no. ...orb of understanding. I'm talking about, like... The idea of belief being, like, a supernatural force that actually summons a being into existence, that didn't mean that at all. I mean, I I do love that kind of shit. If you like books that are doing that kind of shit, get at me. Maybe maybe start a different podcast with me? I don't know. Don't do that. Uh, But the thing that I was uh, actually trying to suggest about it was a little more symbolic. That, that, Mm. like... um, like, on some level, uh, that... That Moby Dick is just a mindless whale, but he becomes this symbol in people's minds because they hear these rumors and these beliefs? Yeah, and almost... Okay, I'm actually... I'm about to... Here's what I think Gene Wolfe would say about this. Uh, mm. It doesn't matter... It doesn't matter if Moby Dick is malevolent or not. 
Uh, what matters is the spiritual journey of the people who are united to fight Moby Dick and who are convinced that it is the right thing to do to fight Moby Dick, right? I so mean, I think that, that that is a reasonable argument to be made, but I think the book also wants to know which one is true. Oh, oh I agree. Like, I, listen, I also tell, I also agree that it doesn't really matter if the supernatural actually exists. What matters is the things that happen to you as you explore your belief in that. Like. I agree that that's unsatisfying. Like, I also want Gene Wolfe to tell me if the supernatural exists or not. Um, but he's doing a very different thing than Melville is. Yes. Um, anyway, uh, but uh, the, I was I was arranging a structure, though, of... Um, Sorry. Yes. No, it's okay. Uh, it's it's And, and I want to say, you were right to say that it's not quite literally about admitting the existence of the supernatural. I am thinking about it that way because of... Umineko. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, like, it is more sort of like, I guess. This is the anime episode. Sorry, go on. <laughs> They're all the anime episode, Ben. It's all okay, been. This has had a high density. Anyways, well, it's please a continue. very anime chapter. Um, anyway, the, um, the next person in the chain of, like, increasing, sort of having thought your worldview through. Because, yeah, basically, I think the objection you raised to Starbuck, where it's like, yeah, buddy, if um, Divine Providence made nature, then Divine Providence made Moby Dick. So you can't mm -hmm. really say that there's no mind behind Moby Dick. Like, that's kind of a dodge. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think Ishmael is someone who understands that that's a dodge, right? And is like, yeah. all right, yeah, here's something that seems to be malevolence in nature, and I believe that God made nature, and I don't really think that God would hurt me like this, but on the other hand, like, something Ishmael obviously knows, even if he doesn't necessarily believe in Moby Dick, per se, is like, yeah, there's lots of suffering in life. Like, mm -hmm. um, I do think that as far as sort of, like, degree to which, maybe a better way of thinking about it compared, like... It's less that the difference between these characters is that they're less or more traumatized, and more like the difference is how much they are conscious of their own trauma and the effect that it has had on them. So, like, mm. Starbuck is like, uh, my own family died, don't care, gonna keep doing the exact same thing they did. Um, and Ishmael is like, well, I'm suicidal, I have to do something about it. I don't know what, I don't know why I'm having the feelings I'm feeling. I'm gonna stand on top of a mast and just kind of fantasize about, like, falling asleep and just falling off, and what would that Oof. feel like? Like, Ishmael is is having a lot of weird trauma reactions, or he is having yeah. a lot of weird uh, mental Ideations. things. Uh, yeah, but he isn't very conscious of, like, he isn't thinking to himself, like, oh, there's something wrong with my relationship to the world. Like, how can I fix it? Or, like, what should I do about it, right? Whereas Ahab is like, yeah, I understand. Something happened to me. It broke my relationship to reality. I have reconstructed my relationship to reality in a far more terrible form, and I have a purpose for it. Thanks. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I think that Ahab took it as a learning moment. He saw in the whale, I mean, all of these things that's implied were present for him, that he was aware of the... Uh, the terrors in the world because he is a deep man. He is a, a think. He is someone who has thought deeply and that there is a, and it is very clear that, you know, deepness is such a concern in this book. And it's very clear that the deep thinker does 
come to tragic conclusions in Melville's framework, and especially as Ishmael understands it. And there's a line here as we're talking about having been unlimbed of a leg, uh, Ahab is being transported back to New England, and how everyone heard him raving and ranting and, you know, uh, imprecating at, you know, the loss of his leg, and they thought he'd gone mad, and then he eventually comes out of his cabin and is mild and, you know, but he's dark and uh, grim as we've seen him, but he's not raving anymore except even then in his Ahab, in his hidden self, raved on. Ahab is never calm. Ahab is constantly... Ahab is constantly driven by this purpose that he has discovered. He cannot stop seeing the truth that he believes he has uncovered in the world, which is that it is malicious and that Moby Dick is... Again, I think that Ishmael so simplifies it when he says that, oh yeah, no, he thinks he thinks the whale is Satan, he thinks the whale is the source of all evil, because Ahab has said that's not what he thinks. He said that uh, the whale is the wall pressed close to him, not the entire wall. Yeah. The whale is part of the world, and it is the most world part of the world, is how I would put it. Yeah, it's it's also like, I think maybe there's a certain sense of, almost like, uh, the way that Ahab might think about this is like, Okay, yeah, obviously, if there is one giant malevolent entity outside the world, right, that, like, is evil and, like, made everything so evil and, like, Moby Dick is my symbol for this, I understand, if I may have, because because I am this kind of thinker, right, that, yeah. like, okay, yeah, like, the Demiurge is not really just one fucking whale, right? That is the pinky of his hand, like, pressing, mm-hmm. uh, pressing up against the wall, right? Like, if I, if I attack, I, I think when I have spoken before about the idea that Ahab has a sense of, like, the doom of his mission and, like, maybe thinks he's not going to come back, mm-hmm. I think maybe that's part of it, is, like, he knows he can't kill God, really. He might I mean, be able to kill the white whale, but I- think he's going to try. Yeah, like, it, it's- I think that there's a, tr- uh, a a certain, like, tragedy to it even now, I guess is what yeah. I'm saying. And I don't think you have to think that... I don't think you have to disbelieve in the Demiurge as, like, a supernatural being that somehow really is reaching through Moby Dick to see the tragedy here. Mm-hmm. And I really love all this... There's so much description here of Ahab's sort of mind and purpose that... Uh, Again, another line I love so much is um, uh, uh, Ahab's full lunacy subsided not, but deepeningly contracted, like the unabated Hudson when that noble Northman flows narrowly but unfathomably through the Highland Gorge. But as in his narrow-flowing monomania, not one jot of Ahab's broad madness had been left behind. So, in that broad madness, not one jot of his great natural intellect had perished, that before living agent now became the living instrument. And that reminds me so much of his statement that, uh, be the whale agent, or be he principal. Yeah. It, Ahab's uh, it, mind is now a an instrument for his wrath. It, it strongly evokes... I'm... Shit. Uh, showing my ass on this because I can't remember if this is from Plato or Aristotle. I want to lean towards Plato, but there's a, a famous mean, image. Hey, hey, hey. It's all Greek to me. 
There's a famous metaphor for, like, uh, I mean, basically the, the structure of the human mind or of the human soul, um, which is, like, you know, uh, a man is, like, drawing a carriage with two horses, and one of the horses is reason and the other is emotion, right? And there is kind of the idea that, like, the, the point of this metaphor is that one of the horses is maybe stronger than the other and is going to, like, overly drive the cart. And, like, you, as your as you know, because of the way Plato would frame this, I think. This does like, sound like Aristotle, because Aristotle loved the, the golden mean. He loved, he loved medium things. Oh, uh, maybe so. God, I'm embarrassed uh, that I don't know what this is, and I actually am going to look it up because I'm not remembering what point it's actually supposed to make in context. Because I can't remember if it was supposed to be like, your reason has to be stronger than your emotion, or if it was like, ah, oh, you got to keep them in balance. And those are kind of different points, but... Yeah, they are um, different points. But the, the idea that I'm trying to get across here, though, is that, like, reason and emotion, or perhaps, like, intellect and madness, are the two, like, things in Ahab's brain, and formerly one of them was in charge, and now it's the other one. And it's, it's even more than that, though, because it's not just that madness is now in charge, it's that... Uh, God, there's some great metaphors in here, but I we've, I've been reading too many lines, so I should I should hold off on that. But it does say well, that. Well, I'm looking uh, up this thing. Well, anyway, the um, it's it's yeah. Sorry, uh, I just found the allegory that I was looking for. It is Plato. Um, oh, okay. Chari- My bad. The ch- the chariot of the allegory. Um, it is. Uh, let's see. Uh, the chariot. The charioteer represents your intellect, and. Ah, okay, here's what it is. The charioteer is your actual, like, deciding intellect, right? The part that is like, ah, what decisions Mm -hmm. shall I make as a soul? And then you have two horses. One of them are your, like, good, uh, rational impulses. So, like, your... I mean, really, it's your emotional impulses, but the ones that would, in some sense, be good for you, as Plato understands it, right? So, like, your love of beauty and your desire to protect people and things like that and then you have your irrational passions that you know like your madness obviously Mm -hmm. um and so you as the the intellect at the top of it are like trying to guide these two rowdy horses and like trying to steer your mystical experience into the station um cool (laughs) Uh, yeah, but Ahab right now is in fact uh, doing something a little bit different than that, um, which is that he is entirely driven towards solely one purpose, and all of his intellectual powers, his imperial brain, his uh, his drive, his will, all of it is fixed on solely one thing, and that one thing is completely irrational. It's completely mad. He has no. There's no decision he can make that is not in its its pursuit, uh, and. and- it- it honestly really does strike me as, um, like, a reversal of, like, what I think of as, as like, so, so I, I believe this is, like, pretty classic Plato, Plato, is the idea that souls are sort of fundamentally attracted towards, like, goodness, right? And then if you have the idea of, like, a, a, a monistic, the good, there's an, a sense almost that all souls are, like, attracted towards the gravity of God, right? And, uh... Very clearly, the exact opposite is happening to Ahab right now. Like, his well, soul, instead of being drawn by love towards God, his soul is being drawn by hate towards Moby Dick. Yeah, I mean, 
uh, might be the same direction, but the um, well, but it's very clearly the emotion of hate that is doing yes, the drawing. Yes, it is definitely, and more than that, he's um, he's now described as possessing a thousandfold more potency than he ever had sanely brought to bear upon any one reasonable object. So he has this yeah. unreasonable purpose, but his sanity is all still there working towards that purpose. It's it's one of the ways yeah. in which he's presented as almost superhuman, is that he does not make irrational decisions or mistakes except for the specific mistake and irrational decision of hunting the white whale. It it also, like, frankly, it really does strike me as, like, basically if, if Plato were uh, a dualist and, and, and believed in, like, a negative pole of mm. bad, right, then hate would be the, emo- like, First of all, hate would be the emotion that would drive one there, as opposed to love, I think. But also, like, it would make sense that the thing you would do when you get to your target is destroy it rather than, like, merge with it, right? Yeah. I, th- I mean, I don't know how much Plato was specifically suggesting merging with the good. I think that might be more Neoplatonic. Yeah, you're right. That probably is more of a Neoplatonic ideal. Um, but, uh... Also, to be fair, Neoplatonism begins, like, immediately after Plato, so... Yeah, sure, but, you know... I but wasn't yes, talking about right. t- temp- temporalities. <laughs> I, I, well, I, I feel the need to cite that my Neoplatonism is has at least a bit of a pedigree, because I know I sometimes fall into a very specific period of Neoplatonism, mm-hmm. if you see what I'm saying. Yeah, that's fair. Sorry, listeners, that's just the deep Tilly lore that uh, I can't really explain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's... it's I mean, hey, uh, yet Ahab's larger, darker, deeper part remains unhinted. But vain yeah, to popularize yeah. profundities. <laughs> and all truth is profound. So, actually, and so that's that's also great, because we talk about how, um, you know, we're getting this image of the monomania of Ahab, its singular purpose, and yet we are also told that this is an incomplete picture, that there is presumably yeah. something to his madness and something to his object that is profound and deep. And I would argue that the Gnosticism that is present in only references and frameworks and uh, is really mm-hmm. something that I'm having to dig out, I think that is part of what is deep and profound in Ahab. I think it is the specific yeah. fact that he does not merely see the whale as the devil, but sees the whale as God. Yeah, I, I think that would make a lot of sense. I mean, I think that, like, even if I try to lit, just kind of think about it just in terms of, like, what Ishmael is saying, and I, I'm, I'm trying not to read Gnosticism into it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it is very clear that, uh, you know, when Ishmael says, like, there are, like, profundities to Ahab's, like, to what Ahab is doing yeah. that even I don't understand and can't communicate... I, I think he is talking about, some, like, essentially an occult framework. Like, he is saying that Ahab has some kind of secrets that it's not just, like, I don't know them, but, like, somehow I couldn't fathom them. If I knew them, maybe I couldn't tell you, you know? Yeah, I I think that the fact that immediately after saying that, Ishmael goes on a really weird metaphorical paragraph is a important element of this. Yeah, because, wait, can you give give me a give me a quotation just to land me uh, in the text? This is much, yet Ahab's larger, darker, deeper part remains unhinted. Ah, uh, right, we just skipped over a bunch of stuff that we shouldn't have totally skipped I, over. I, I don't think, think we did, we've been going through it. Oh, no, 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 piece. sorry, I messed up. My, my bad, my bad. Uh, I'm <laughs> sorry. 
totally lost fine. my place in the book for a second, but I see where you are now. Um, yeah, this whole thing about the Hotel de Clooney. I don't know what the fuck <laughs> this is about. Yeah, um, so... I mean, um... It's a very specific reference that I do have citations for, but... Oh, like, I would love to know the Hotel de Clooney reference. That bit I yeah. don't have. Yeah, so I think I should just read this. Um, mm-hmm. Or at least read read the Hotel de Clooney bit. Um, Winding far down from within the very heart of this spiked... Okay, let me actually do it. Hotel de Clooney, where we stand. <laughs> uh, however grand and wonderful, now quit it. And take your way, ye nobler, sadder souls, to those vast Roman halls of Thermes, where, okay, I should cite, the Hotel de Cluny is what is now called the Musée de Cluny, which is a, uh, my citation says, now the Musée de Cluny in Paris, this striking medieval structure had recently been made a museum when Herman Melville visited Paris in 1849. So, we are talking about some sort of, um, I don't really know what the word hotel would imply in this context but i'm guessing it's some kind of like medieval castle or like house uh some Mm -hmm. sort of big medieval building um in paris uh and we've been yeah we've been like inside uh the heart of this huge medieval building and that is as far as we've been able to penetrate into ahab's like symbolic world into ahab's consciousness Mm -hmm. uh and it's been grand and wonderful now quit it and take your way, ye nobler, sadder souls, to those vast Roman halls of Thermes, by which he means baths, because the Hotel de Cluny was, the citation says, was built on the remnants of 3rd century Gallo-Roman baths, known as the Thermes de Cluny. So, or Thermes de Cluny, maybe? I have no idea. I, sh- I shouldn't attempt pronunciation. The point is, he's saying you're leaving the castle and you're going to the baths? The ancient baths. I mean, I, th- where... I think you're going to a place beneath the ground that is now in ruins, where once was some kind of subterranean drawing up of waters, uh, of a prior order that is now ruinous rather than the sort of grand and awesome uh, hotel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just the thing that I'm a little confused about here is. Uh... Like, what is the, if the, if the halls of Thermes, where we're going to find, metaphorically, like, Ahab's true essence, his whole awful essence sits in bearded state. Because, uh, uh, yeah, as the metaphor goes on, we, like, are in the bath. Well, I don't we... think that's Ahab. Because it's, we're far beneath oh. the fantastic towers of man's upper earth, not this man's, not a man's, oh, not oh, Ahab's right. upper earth. Let's, you know, I just gotta read it. Where far beneath the fantastic towers of man's upper earth, his root of grandeur, his whole awful essence sits in bearded state. An antique buried beneath antiquities and throned on torsos. So with a broken throne, the great gods mock that captive king. So like a caryatid, uh, like a sculpture, he patient sits, upholding on his frozen brow the piled entablatures of ages. Um, entablatures being a building support. Um, wind well, you down. So is a caryatid. It's a it's a statue used as a as a pillar to hold up. Right, a that's right. So okay, I just want to okay. Let me stop for a second. Take so we have this ruined bearded king on a broken throne sitting underneath, ru- uh, deep underneath Roman ruins, or 
No, within Roman ruins, deep underneath the hotel. Oh my god. Is this... Is this Moby Dick inside the waters in the center of the earth? No, no, I don't think so. I think this is man. This is Adam. This is the figure of humanity. General humanity. A... Because they say, oh. wind ye down there, ye prouder, sadder souls, question that proud, sad king, a family likeness, I, he did beget ye, ye young, exiled royalties, and from yes. your grin, sire, only will the old state secret come. And so, I'm not going to completely Gnosticize this, I'm sure there are other explanations, but what we have here is the origin point of humanity, sitting like a Dark Souls boss on a pre- on tr- uh, the broken statuary of old Rome, because I think that is what torsos are, mocked yeah. by gods, holding up this vast edifice of human accomplishment and creation, but there is something older and antique and pre-Christian that is down there, and it is from that grim origin that some secret truth that something that is in the profundity of Ahab comes. And I I certainly don't think that it's secretly, you know, Zeus exists, but I do think that the whole awful essence in this ruined grandeur is something about humanity as a whole. Very masculinized here, but... I have a, a proposition. Yes. Um, there's a way we might interpret all this, because uh, when you think about, like, okay, the sin of Adam, like, Adam is still suffering beneath the earth. Okay, this is actually uh, pretty much what Christians, okay, depends on the Christian, obviously, but, but but in a sort of general Christian symbolic framework of the sort that Melville writes about, the kind of 19th century imagination, mm-hmm. uh, you know, also a lot of this actually is specifically based on Dante. Yeah, um, I think just saying within a, a Dantean Christian imaginary. Yes. Um, yeah, so, like, Adam, you know, Adam commits the first sin, like, introduces sin into the world, and goes to hell, and is, like, suffering there, until the coming of Christ. And then Christ does the harrowing of hell, which is, like, he goes down into hell and he fucks Yeah, and this is, this is very Dantean. Like, I want to be specific that this is a, that's a Dantean imagery of... That's, yeah, Dante, Dante, like, made that Made that up, yeah. But it's, it's also, like, it's this, it's something that... I don't know if Ishmael literally believes in the harrowing of hell, but he knows what it is, right? And it's something yeah, he would use in a metaphor. Yeah. Um, and, and the point of the harrowing of hell is that, like, that's the moment when, like, Christ redeems Adam and, like, a handful of other biblical figures. Um, mm-hmm. But, like, there is this very specific sense of, like, not just, oh, Christ redeems sin and Adam started sin, but, like, there's a kind of personal, like, the... the um, the coming of Christ is, like, the necessary answer to the sin of Adam, and so there's a connection mm. between the two figures. Yeah, right? this is, this is in fact, the model of Irenaeus. Uh, I was scrolling his Wikipedia page to make sure I was getting him right. Who's the, yeah. remember, the phraseologist who really didn't like the Ophites. Uh, yeah, Irenaeus so I, framed Christ as the last Adam. Yes, and, and I think that what we're talking about here is, okay, the family likeness is between the, like, ancient, bizarre, like primordial creature that adam is here and this other brooding king that we saw up in the spiked hotel de Cluny, where we just were mm-hmm. who is ahab ahab is the last adam ahab is like 
the Gnostic Antichrist who will redeem mm. the world by killing God, maybe? I mean, well, well, first of all, in, in most Gnosticism, including the Ophites, it, it's still, Jesus is still a pretty good figure. They, there is what? a savior figure in Gnosticism, and I don't think that it's anti, like, Jesus is not a fan of the demiurge in Gnosticism. He's in fact- No, no. His, it's, it's a, often a sort of a trick where uh, Christ enters through the offices of the Demiurge in order to redeem people out from under him. But I actually want to point to something else here, which is, um, you know, that phrase, uh, um, the great gods mock that captive king. That is very, if we are looking at this Gnostically, those are the archons. Those are the authorities of the world, which, you know, are easily you know, framed in the Roman gods, who cons- who are also planetary, um, who construct and uh, control this world, who have set Adam, and ra- or rather, humanity at large. Because I think that this allegorical Adam is perhaps uh, readable as humanity as a whole, because yes. while there is a family likeness, uh, it's not just to Ahab, it's also to any of those sadder, nobler souls who can perceive this. You might say, the divine inert who can, in going down here, recognize the state of humanity, recognize that this is their own situation, that they are, at the same time, that they are held up by this, that this is the caryatid and entablatures of their being, is that humanity is suffering in this way, that this exiled king, they are exiled royalties. There's definitely a sense that humanity is owed something that it is not uh, attaining, I yeah. don't think sin enters into this. I, I think I, that's... Oh, sorry, go on. No, I want you to finish your sentence, but then I'll say my thing. I think I do not think that here, if this is Adam, I do not think he is presented as a, as a sinner or as one who has done wrong, which in connection to the Ophites nearby in this chapter is a very interesting position. Yeah, I think it's very possible to read this if, and also we had to excavate that this was Adam, but I think it's also very possible to read this Adam as a, like, yeah, like, um, you know, in the way that it's, it's very tempting as someone who doesn't like, like, patriarchal Christianity to read Adam as like a Prometheus figure, you know, as someone Mm -hmm. who seized knowledge that he deserved and then was like unjustly punished for thousands of years. Yeah. Um, to be to be clear, it is not universal that uh, Adam would have gone to hell. Yeah, I know. Um, uh, but I think but it's, it's pretty clear that this, yeah. clearly this Adam is suffering beneath the earth, suffering beneath the earth, and sealed within the material world. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Also, um, I I was thinking like one thing that I think is a, a very relevant question because yeah, like as you say, not every single Christian tradition has the exact same ideas about what happens to Adam like, after death. And I think that the idea of the harrowing of hell is one that, like, I have actually no idea whether your typical 19th century, you know, New Englander uh, believed in that or not. And so, Mm -hmm. like, I think that that's something interesting. I'd I'd like to maybe research that later. The reason Mm -hmm. why I'm particularly interested in it is because I think it really affects how you read this vision of Adam. Like, Mm -hmm. if... Obviously, I don't think this is meant to be a literal description of something that Ishmael thinks is like, whoops, <laughs> that just tells me that it's midnight uh, and that I should go to bed soon. But, oh yeah, we uh, should I mention that more... we've, we've been recording pretty late. <laughs> I mean, it's fine. Look, yeah. I'm not going to stress. Anyway, the uh-huh. point is, um, 
So, like, this vision, this is a vision of Adam who is currently in hell. And in the Dantean framework, that suggests that the redemption has not happened yet, right? That, like, Mm. Christ has not yet come. Now, I don't know what exactly that would mean to Ishmael, right? Like, I don't know what exactly Ishmael grew up being taught about what happened to Adam after death. Mm-hmm. So it's possible that the vision of Adam in hell doesn't necessarily evoke uh, a a pre-Christ world. Yeah. But I, I, I think it's certainly at least worth considering that angle. And I think that like... Yeah. I... Mm. I think one thing maybe to say about it would be, I, I think that uh, Ahab's Gnosticism is not one that especially values the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, oh, certainly not. Like, I, I, I... There are some interesting things that one can read in, in later in the book about whether Ahab believes that there is, you know, the larger salvatory framework that exists in a lot of Gnosticism that sort of reaches around and past the Demiurge from some higher godhead. That's That's a thing that will take a while to show up, and only in small ways. But um, I do think that it is fair to say that Ahab is very unchristian. Yeah. Mm. And in fact, we it should be noted that even if uh, Melville had significant understanding of um, of the uh, you know the Ophites of the Gnostics and so on, I don't know that he would necessarily have had the same one that, you know, for example, I might have from reading on Wikipedia and looking at the Nag Hammadi library. So it's quite possible that he understood them as uh, heresies that, you know, the Ophites were seen as not, were, were seen by Irenaeus as dismissing Christ for the serpent. So we should keep that in mind, as well as, again, the entire world is Leviathan, the world soul is Leviathan. I'm still reeling from having run across that. Yeah, no, that's a, that's like... <laughs> I can't believe you found that live on our podcast. I'm really... Uh... I didn't find that live on the podcast. I found it five minutes before the podcast and then bit my lip like mad. <laughs> well, all right. The The point being, very good that that happened. Um, uh, we should maybe... Uh, do we have more to say about this terrible vision of Adam or... Uh, I, I mean, I guess what I would say is that I think that... We are reading a lot of biblical imagery into it, and you're coming to it with this Dantean framework that I think is very useful, but I do think that—I don't think that we necessarily directly know it. It is an intensely—it is a profound, in the way Ishmael uses it, imagery. It is intentionally difficult. I think that we've teased out a lot of the structures to it. The, you know, the the complex language gives way to this uh, understanding of an ancient ancestor, universal to humanity, who is an exiled king, who— is connected to these sadder, nobler nobler souls, of which Ahab is certainly one, that is found beneath even the gothic and impressive edifice among ruins. And there are reasons to say, that's Adam. But I don't want to just have that be the only thing they say. I do want to include this sort of caveat of, you know, it might not be Adam. It might be, you know, it might merely be allegorical for humanity. It might be all sorts of things. But, you know, we're existing in a framework that is very much touching on Christian uh, Christian stories and is certainly founded there. I just think that I, the the complexities of Ishmael's metaphors are not easily untangled. Yeah. I, I also think um, it, th- there's, there's a certain part of me which wants to, like, credit uh, the originality 
of this, like, image, right? Mm-hmm. Um, n- not to say, like, originality is not, like, the only thing that matters when you are going to construct a, like, symbolic framework, when you're going to c- construct, like, an ancient being who lives beneath the earth. Uh, being a new idea is not actually the most important thing about that, I think. But yeah. I do think that, like, there's an element here where it's like, okay, this is Ishmael's, or maybe Melville's, or maybe Ahab's, attempts to construct some kind of, yeah, you know, some kind of symbolic framework that is not Christianity. So, you know, I think there is a certain, it is worth engaging with, like, what this image literally is before we just decide, oh, that's Adam, you know? It's worth thinking about what other influences are here and and what elements of this are just, what what of this actually is, like, new art and, and, and... we can think about these things, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the, I I had these kinds of thoughts in the earlier parts of the chapter where it's just literally describing the characteristics of Moby Dick the whale. Mm-hmm. I felt that it often was, like, very much taking on the character of, like, these are the symbolic attributes of this mythic figure. And so this is how you can tell when you look at, like, you know, <laughs> Renaissance art. You can tell which saint it is because they're always holding this object. It's like, oh, you can tell it's Moby Dick because of all the, like, corkscrewed uh, harpoons coming out of his back. And also he has, like, a white head and he's speckled white all over. And also you can tell it's him because he goes, like, uh, uh, garbed in a wake of stars and, like... Yeah, no, the, the, the imagery there is is deific, you might say. Yeah. Um... <sighs> and then, of course, after having cognized and dealt with all of this we come back to ahab who uh has um it's described here as having some glimpse glimpse in this in his heart that what he's doing here is maybe not entirely sane uh but he cannot change his new obsession he cannot it's it's interesting because it's sort of suggesting the idea that ahab's well aware that he is now insane but is I think he's described as helpless to change or kill that fact or shun that yeah. fact. And uh, he likewise knew that to mankind he did long dissemble. That is to say, he's going to be, he's presenting himself, hiding his uh, true nature so that he can acquire the means and necessary resources to hunt God. Yeah, like, I, it. honestly, like, I've been talking throughout this about the the sort of like interestingness of like the madness of Ahab as a as a mm-hmm. response to trauma. I, I also think that this state that he enters, where he is like, uh, "All right, I have this like singular desire within me, and like I know what it is now. I know how to accomplish it. I know what I've got to do." I've got to go pursue this desire in the world among people who will not let me do it. If I, like, if I if I let on about what I'm actually trying to do here, I'm not going to get to see. So I need to conceal the true sort of mad nature of who I really am mm-hmm. so that I can get the rest of the world to work with me. Yep. Had any um, one and- of his old acquaintances on shore but half dreamed of what was lurking in him then... How soon would their aghast and righteous souls have wrenched the ship from such a fiendish man? 
Yeah, it's like just sometimes something happens and it completely changes your worldview and then like none of your friends recognize you anymore <laughs> and you have to kind of lie to them about who you are because like you just can't fucking explain the new Ahab to them. I God. Yeah. Like I It's a lot for me sometimes. There's a lot of um a lot of really resonant and complicated character work here. Yeah. And I love the description of um, of the calculating people of that prudent isle. I just keep quoting bits, but like talking about how the Nantucketers who fund these voyages and who is you know Bildad and uh, the other one um, Peleg. Bildad and Peleg. You consistently remember Bildad and forget Peleg. Well, I don't understand Peleg. why. <laughs> I, I don't care why. I you know what? Uh, this may be unreasoning, but I've decided I hate Peleg. Um, he keeps avoiding my memory, and that's unkind. Uh, <laughs> I support but you. It's this idea that rather than when he when he shows up on you know having howled his way around the Patagonian uh, point and having slowly come to a grim but reasonable exterior, uh, Ahab sets ivory leg now that it has been cut on uh, Nantucket shore, and the people who outfit boats and have the shares in them go, hmm, you know he he doesn't seem entirely all right. He seems darker and grimmer. Wonderful. We'll make a great profit because he's going to murder so many whales. Um, yeah, like they can tell that he is changed now, but they don't know exactly how. And it seems as though he's changed in a way that will make him like fiercer and, and like more dangerous. And, and, and that more is true, profitable. Specifically exactly. more profitable. They they see his, they see his yep. trauma, they see his uh, decision, and they go, I can make bank on that. Yeah, no, they literally are doing that. That's mm-hmm. a very funny framework to me, though, because, like, God. <laughs> I mean, it's like when I think about people who are exploiting others and making money off of their trauma, I mean, there's a zillion different examples of that in this terrible world, because wouldn't you know it, the world seems to be full of suffering, almost as though someone evil made it to be that way. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, sometimes it makes you just want to go murder an impossible whale. But, uh... Yeah, no, he's. I, I also just love the phrase gnawed within and scorched without, with the infixed, unrelenting fangs of some incurable idea. Such an one, could he be found, would seem the very man to dart his iron and lift his lance against the most appalling of all brutes. Yeah, yeah. he is. What do you think that means? Yeah, I mean, what it feels like to me in this moment, again, I've talked about the idea that, that we're constructing a symbolic order here. This is the moment maybe more than others, where it feels to me like not, it's not the sailors are creating the legend of Moby Dick with their rumor pregnancy. It's not like uh, Ahab is creating the the fervor to hunt the whale. Um, In this moment, the person who's creating the symbolism, um, even though to some extent he's just describing what is literally true, but the person who is dramatizing it is definitely Ishmael Mm -hmm. in this moment. Ishmael is the one who is saying, look guys, if you had to pick a single person, like, okay, look, I'm not trying to say Moby Dick is evil or, like, is Satan, but I am saying that there is a singularly terrifying sperm whale. And if you had to send one someone out there to kill it, don't you think that, like, a king of men who is obsessed with killing it would be the ideal <laughs> person for the task? Like, this is Ishmael developing a symbolic structure about, like, the person who is destined to fight Moby Dick. 
I suppose, but here's here to to play Starbucks advocate. Uh, mm-hmm. Why do we need to kill the unkillable death whale? Why don't well, we just I don't go know. hunt whales that make us money? But that sure is what Ishmael is saying, though, right? Because like, yeah. what, let me let me see. Hang on, just a sec. What what he? I mean, you literally quoted the bit where it says, "Yeah, yeah." Would seem the very man to blah 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 against the most appalling of all brutes. I take exactly, that to mean- but they what it's irony, I think, because. The sperm whale is the most appalling of all brutes, is a general concept, but mm. Moby Dick is, in fact, special. And, like, that's the thing. If you believe Moby Dick to be, in fact, special, uplifted above other whale kind in some way in his monstrousness and awfulness, then you're already halfway to believing that Moby Dick is supernatural. Yeah, yeah. And and I, and I think that, like... Yeah, you're totally right. The phrase, the most appalling of all brutes, is really convenient there. You can really imagine, like, uh, you know, Bildad and Peleg are, like, talking to Ahab, and they're like, so you're you're back? You're, like, okay? And he's like, yeah, I am ready to go destroy the most appalling of all brutes. And they're like, oh, you want to hunt a lot of sperm whales now. I love that for you. And he's like, uh-huh, yeah, that's that's what I want to do. That, that's definitely, a lot of sperm whales, very, you know, you will... Uh, you will um, count your profit in dollars from the mint, truly, and not in revenge against God. Yeah, I. you have to wonder what he thinks of those two in that moment. Like, because cause he does pretty much say to Starbuck, like, uh, shut up about the profit, I'm going to bring you payment in revenge. And he must, on some level, have wanted to say that to everyone. Oh, yeah, um, no. Ahab... This is this is one of those proofs of Ahab's incredible mental fortitude and the the degree yeah. to which he as a individual is incredibly powerful which Ishmael is very clear about is the fact that he got given a boat to do this despite yeah, no, the fact he... that all he wants to do is die or kill in combat with the white whale. Yeah, no, it's very impressive like honestly the power of, like, managing to just... Because he wasn't able to conceal his nature. So he he must have, because this is how he's being depicted, he must have, in a in a very conscious way, thought about how he would reveal his madness, right? Yes. He was like, okay, if they see me twitch, if they see me flinch, they'll think I'm weak. But if they see me striding around on a leg made of ivory, they are going to know that, like, I just want to kill whales, and they're going to read it in the way that I want them to read it. Like, he has, he crafted a a, a performance of, like, Ahab, the captain who is mad to kill sperm whales. Yeah, I I think that's, I think he carefully allowed certain parts of his self to come through, to shine through, knowing that these would ensure him his necessary uh, means to revenge. Uh, It's very Count of Monte Cristo in that way. And Yeah, because, like, (laughs) yeah. Because, yeah, because he couldn't have pretended to be the same person or to be, like, you know, to be, like, a Peleg or a Bildad or even, like, I think we can assume that even before he lost his leg, Ahab was still kind of a bizarre and intense individual because he he was still this imperial brain as the book depicts him. But, But but like, he he was, he, he didn't even try to make anyone think that 
he hadn't changed a great deal. Well, you he, know? Made, he made them think that he was not otherwise than but naturally aggrieved, and that to the quick <laughs> with the terrible casualty which had overtaken him, which is to say, they thought it was the, you know, the normal, reasonable, and acceptable amount of upset about having your leg ripped off by a giant whale, you know, that, that thing that we all understand to exist as part of the, <laughs> right. the social organization of our world as Nantucketers who hunt whales. That, like, if it your is... parent or your brother or your leg get destroyed by the whale, you're supposed to be sad this much, but not yeah. angry this much. It is actually, you're very right. Like, a lot of what's going on here with Ahab is that he is having... He has, something has happened to him that actually isn't that abnormal. I mean, in the specifics, like, the things about how... Uh, he was only maimed and not killed. There are things that are, like, weird and specific. And I bet yeah. if anyone told him, Ahab, what happened to you is just what happens to people every day, he would be like, oh, really? But, um... I mean, but here's the thing. I think he might say, yeah, and I'm gonna do something about it. Well, okay, that's a good point. But I also think that Ahab would really take issue with the idea mm. that, like, there wasn't specific insults in the way that it was done, you know? There is a person that we will meet later in the book. Aha! <laughs> and it will be a quite interesting interaction between Ahab and this person. I look forward to that. So, but the, um, you know, the thing I'm, I'm just thinking about right now is, is like, uh, Ahab is basically, yeah, he is having a... On some level, like, being maimed by a whale is kind of normal for a whaler. And there is, yeah, like, a socially prescribed way to react to that. And Ahab is going... Ahab is basically refusing to accept what his society tells him is, like, as much uh, complaint as he is allowed about the problems of the world. You know? Like, there is some degree of mourning that is permitted... Because this is a horrible way of life. But Ahab was never going to be content with the normal amount of any emotion. Yeah, yeah, no, he he is, um... And here's the thing that I really, that I think we should get to, because we, we have been going on for almost three hours. Mm -hmm. um, it's This is going to be a very long episode. But Not that last paragraph, which is, uh, here then was this gray-headed, ungodly old man, chasing with curses a Job's whale round the world, at the head of a crew, too, chiefly made up of mongrel renegades and castaways and cannibals, morally enfeebled also by the incompetence of mere, unaided virtue or right-mindedness in Starbuck, the invulnerable jollity of indifference and recklessness in Stubb, and the pervading mediocrity in Flask. Also, airhorns, airhorns, wow, Flask burn. Um, yeah, I know, right? Jesus such Christ. Such a crew so officered seemed specially picked and packed by some infernal fatality to help him to his monomaniac revenge. And there's this idea that everyone has taken up his revenge for, you know, by what evil magic their souls were possessed, that at times his hate seemed almost theirs, the white whale as much their insufferable foe as his— how all yeah. this came to be, what the white whale was to them, or how to their unconscious understandings, also in some dim, unsuspected way, he might have seemed the gliding great demon of the seas of life. All this to explain would be to dive deeper than Ishmael can go. And what I love about this is that it implies that it is not just because of Ahab's force of personality and his imperial brain. Mm -hmm. It is not just because of the weakness of Starbucks' mere unaided virtue or, you know, the fact that Stubb will, is completely amoral and, you know, Flask is m mediocre. <laughs> um, but also because 
There is something there. There is some truth that Ahab has stumbled upon, some truth perhaps with malice in it, that on being understood, on being communicated to these, you know, this rough crew, they can feel it in their bones and understand that Moby Dick has to die. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I, I think this also, like, God, um, there, there's a lot going on here, I think, in Ishmael's understanding of, like, what the people who were caught up in Ahab's purpose might have been perceiving correctly mm -hmm. that, say, Starbuck fails to perceive, and, like, how they might have perceived it, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's clear that, it is clear that the crew, by and large, are not experiencing knowledge. They don't, yeah. ha or, or rather, knowledge is the wrong word. They are not experiencing gnosis. Mm -hmm. They aren't, like intellectually understanding the secret nature of Moby Dick. They don't really know about most of what Moby Dick is, really. Like, Ahab has not given them the little lower layer. Well, but... He, hmm. Hmm. Well, that, that, is a, that is a question of, of, of um, analysis, I will say. I, I always think that the first part of his, uh, his speech there is heard by the rest of the crew, but it is true that he is not giving them an, an elaborate metaphysics of it. He's just saying, strike through the mask. Right. So, so I think that, I mean, yeah, the, the exact, it is clear that Ahab's, like, occult narrative of what he is doing with Moby Dick is the kind mm -hmm. of thing that he can, I mean, it has the little lower layer, right? So he can give the most broad and appealing version of it, and he can also uh, give a sort of deeper explanation for people who understand better, right? And so, like, um... However, I think that Ishmael is interested in this moment in what the feeling is when you don't intellectually understand the occult purpose. Mm. You haven't had, you have not read the book on some level, right? Yeah. But you know, you fucking know that you have to kill Moby Dick. And sometimes you just know that in a way that is different from the thing that you can actually communicate by explaining like the metaphysical structure. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And I think, I think at least for Ishmael, it's very much also about the structure and shape of the crew. He, he you know, he says, yes. um, uh, you know, what skiff in tow of a 74 can stand still? Um, you know, yes. if you're pulled along by this immense, uh, this immense mass, this much larger ship, I believe is what a 74 is referring to. Um, mm -hmm. a skiff, which is to say a, a little small, small boat, um, being towed by that can't do anything about it. You'll just be yanked along. And it's unclear if Ishmael just means himself. That is to say, he doesn't understand why everyone's going along with this, but, uh, everyone's going along with this and he doesn't want to be left out he feels that emotion running through them through him and from them and mm -hmm. it's it's another way in which Ish, uh, ahab's i keep doing that tonight uh where ahab's sort of power and direction is this galvanic energy that just flows into other people which i might think is similar to gnosis it's not pure knowledge, but it's an energizing occult force that Ahab can insert into people with his words and drive them onwards towards his purpose. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, you know, I, I, I also think that there is a, a very interesting, like, because this is sort of a, a, a problem on some level that uh, someone who, someone like you and me, who is interested in the concept of, like, occultism, right? Mm -hmm. the, the concept of secret knowledge is, like, a 
an idea that's cool or like a thing that might be a philosophically or theologically or just like personally useful framework. Mm-hmm. Okay. But also you believe in like the universal equality of humanity, right? You don't actually think there's any such thing as an inherently superior being yeah. in the way that yeah, like, exactly. actually Ishmael clearly does. Yeah. Believe. And to be clear, Even... plenty of Gnostics really believed in that. Like that is right. Elitism is a major part of, you know, one of my problems with Gnosticism is a cool philosophical thing. Absolutely. So this is like one of the things that can often be hard to stomach as a modern person when you go back and read older philosophies is that they will just take it as a matter of course that like, yeah, some people are better than others. And like, yep, yep. Uh, and if you believe in secret knowledge, like it's kind of hard to avoid the idea that like, yeah, okay, there's some of us who have the secret knowledge and we're like better than the people who don't know mm-hmm. the secret knowledge. And uh, so does, so the challenge then becomes as someone who like, might be interested in occultism as like a personally meaningful framework, but I want to divest it of this sense that like only the select group of the best of humanity get to be occultists. Well, I think Ishmael's proposing one approach to this when he says um, he's talking about to explain why everyone did this would be to dive deeper than Ishmael can go. The subterranean miner that works in us all, how can one tell whither leads his shaft by the ever shifting muffled sound of his pick? Who does not feel the irresistible arm drag? So I think what he's saying is there's some kind of symbolic, like, process at work in every human mind. Mm. Everybody is having a relationship to this, like, to, to philosophy on some well, level, Well, and that right? works very well with the, the Adamic figure we saw earlier, because that is, mm-hmm. you know, he speaks of exiled, young exiled royalties and the prouder, sadder souls, but that... That figure is below everyone, is is the root of man's essence, not specifically those who seek. It's those yeah, who seek think, who come face to face. I, I think it would be totally valid to read, like, I, I think this is, this is absolutely picking up things and, like, sewing them together on purpose. Mm-hmm. But you could totally say, okay, the subterranean miner that works within us all, that miner is trying to dig down to the exiled king. That is everyone's impulse towards understanding the truth of the world. And it digs in different directions in every person. And you can't tell from the outside how that person is understanding that. Like, and there's even, I think, a certain sense here of, like, you don't know whether someone's path towards, like, enlightenment might be better than yours, Mm. even if you don't actually understand how theirs works. I would take it even further I think that uh, I think that Ishmael is saying also that you don't know what like you can feel these impulses and not understand them. You yes. there is that part of you that you know that subterranean miner delves and delves deep, but you can you can only hear the clinking of the axe. Your you know thoughts and emotions are not yes. necessarily the complete story here. You know, for someone like Ahab, presumably. At the very least, he's well... I mean, Ahab is someone who can literally be aware of his own insanity and plan around it. Like, he's ridiculously self-conscious. Self-aware. The way I would think... The way I think about Ahab's self-awareness is that, like... Yeah, okay, so if if the impulse to, like, understand the world and, like, accept truth and, like, you know, be sort of a spiritual seeker is the, um, the subterranean miner... And normal people are just kind of like, oh, I'm hearing this weird little ding every now and then. I wonder if that's something happening to me. And it's like their soul trying to, like, experience Delve. the world. Yeah. Um, 
Ahab is the kind of guy, like, his situation at this point is that he knows every sound of that little pick, and he knows what direction it's going. And when he, like, hears a particular cadence, he's like, ah, yes, I see. My mind is heading down this particular philosophical pathway that I've been down before a bazillion times. I know that this just leads me to the inevitable conclusion that I do have to kill the whale. Um, like, see, he just see, my, understands. my mental image of this is that Ahab doesn't have a mind. He has a giant borehole going directly down to one place. And, like, the little <laughs> miner is just sort of down at the bottom there, like... No tools, just gnawing on this horrible truth thing that he's found. I I mean, uh, that's... I don't know which of those metaphors I like better, because <laughs> one of them emphasizes the singularity of Ahab's obsession, and it is singular. And the other emphasizes its, like, complication, and mm. it's also very complicated. Yeah, Because yeah. he has this elaborate symbolic framework built up, and he has, like... He's engaged in, like... I think, like, a year of elaborate performances at, like, every moment. Like, his his thoughts, as we have, like, been told repeatedly, are convoluted and weird in a way that's very yeah. hard to understand. There's, so, like... It's, it's really wonderful. He has one singular purpose, and he will go... Th and he is a huge and elaborate system pursuing that. His intellect is convoluted. His will is not. He's, he's like a, God, it's almost, I, and I feel bad to say this because it, it trivializes him a little bit, but he's like some sort of uh, metaphysical Rube Goldberg machine. <laughs> Except that instead of the thing that the machine does at the end of this elaborate set of steps is like, you know, pets a cat, it's harpoons Moby Dick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, and one, one last thing, that phrase, uh, Chasing with curses a Job's whale round the world is such an interesting statement because Leviathan yeah. is not Job's whale. Leviathan, which, you know, and it is Leviathan in the book of Job, that's where we get that, uh, is what God pulls out with a hook. God uh, is explaining his glory to, you know, um, within the story in the book of Job via his might over Leviathan, but Job does not care about Leviathan, nor does Job interact with it. Leviathan is not what causes Job to sit on the ground and weep. Leviathan is not what causes Job his uh, great distress. That would be God. It, it really, like, it, it does... I mean, the way it comes across when you say a Job's whale is not, like, just... Like, I guess in some sense the most obvious reading of that is just the whale that's in the book of Job. Mm -hmm. And... and and he does mean that, right? Because yeah. he does literally just mean that it's Leviathan. But, yeah, it absolutely inv evokes the idea of not just that biblical whale, but the idea of somehow a whale that visited Job's torments upon him. And yeah. that would be God. Yes. So, uh, yeah. I mean, the thing about the book of Job is that, like, it's one of one of the reasons that people often find it very, like, challenging on, on sort of a, a, a spiritual level is that God and... Uh, you know, Satan, the adversary, Satan, the adversary basically seem to be like working together. Oh yeah, I mean, this is this is the the traditional model of Satan in uh, in Jewish thought is the I've seen someone describe him as the prosecutor of humanity. Yeah, this is the court advisor of God who is in no way antagonistic to or disloyal to God, but whose job is to test the creation for flaws, and in this case, yeah. to say. 
you know, in God's ear, well, Sire, he says he's loyal, but he's also very much, you know, benefiting from loyalty to you. Is he really loyal? And the answer is, yeah. let's test. So, yeah, that that figure of Satan is not the Satan that you'll see in many other, you know, uses of the term, certainly not in, uh, you know, the the very, uh, various other more recent, um, uh, you know, Abrahamic interpretations, uh, both Islam and Christianity have Satan as deriving from there, but often becoming a straightforwardly villainous figure. Obviously, Milton's Satan is in direct rebellion, whereas the, I right. mean, you can argue that the, the Satan of the Gospels is still uh, just sort of the tempter, the challenger, the tester, rather than an active dualistic enemy force. Um, but yes, the book of Job, absolutely, Satan is just God's uh, right-hand man in a lot of ways. Yeah, and, and, and like, I think, you know, I think there are a lot of, like, ways of resolving that with, like, a, a, a more sort of traditionally Christian understanding of what Satan is. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, but I, so, like, I don't want to make it sound as though, like, the fact that God and Satan seem to work together in one book of the Bible is something that, like, Christians never figured out, right? Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, like, I do think that that weird, uh, that weird sense that actually um, dualism is not true and is almost, like, too easy of an answer. Yeah, exactly. The, the again, I love the, the little reference to the Ophites. This is, oh, the Ophites, they worship Satan. It's like, well... No, and you probably knew that because you're almost certainly reading Irenaeus. Yeah, like, I do kind of love the fact that, uh, in a certain sense, the way he positions the Ophites here is actually very shallow, because he's yes. kind of just saying that they worship Satan, and that's, in many ways, a huge oversimplification of what their deal is. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's also just this illusion that suggests all this complicated, interesting stuff. It suggests that Melville has read Heresiologies of the Gnostics, because not only that, (laughs) but the Ophites is a particular name for them when the Ophians is what Irenaeus called them, and there's a a Jewish uh, um, scholarship name uh, that is derived from the Hebrew for a snake, um, that also they're, they're a tradition that might be an older than Christian tradition that became a Christian Gnostic tradition, or possibly even was a Gnostic tradition that wasn't Christian, but got sort of swept up in the general heresiology. Uh, there is a great anecdote someone claimed about very late Ophites before they kind of um, went extinct as a tradition, that their communion, they'd have a snake roll around in a bunch of bread, and then they'd all eat the bread, and that's how they did communion. And Oh my god. Just this image of a happy snake rolling around in bread so as to bring about gnosis is very funny to me. Wow. Yeah, I mean, like, there's a certain part of me that's like, I I don't think I would want to eat bread that, like, an animal had touched, but also I can't help but find it kind of cute. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't want to eat the snake communion bread for a number of reasons, um, mostly hygiene, but I do (laughs) think the image of a snake rolling in a bunch of bread is cute. Yes. Especially if that I mean, snake snakes... is, like, universal wisdom. That's the thing. Snakes are cute. This is something that the Ophites clearly understand. <laughs> yep. Uh, oh, God, I'm just, I'm just imagining the, the don't step on me, but it's, uh, it's, it's the snake and uh, it's, it's, it's don't imprison me in material reality. <laughs> God, that's a lot. It really I is. I mean, I don't, 
I don't love that because unfortunately libertarian yeah, no, I, I... Uh, Gnostics are very easy to imagine and oh, they would suck. Oh, oof, 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 oof. Yeah, no, I, I take back everything I just said. Yeah. Sorry. No, it's fine. It's fair. Uh, online right-wing Gnostics or occultists generally are a variety of things and none of them good. Yeah, th- this is one of the things that's often quite frustrating as, like, you know, a, like, uh, queer trans-disabled communist. <laughs> queer trans-disabled mad communist. Forgot that one. That's important here, too. Uh, trying to, like, have, you know, a a, a philosophy or, a, like, an orientation towards reality. Um, and, you know, looking through occultism, because that's what I'm into. And, uh... A lot of times, the people who are into ancient occultism on the internet Suck. are awful. Yeah, 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 no. But <laughs> um, you know who's not awful? Our friend Ishmael. That's right. Like, I know who I'm is not trying awful. To... Our best friend Ahab. <laughs> Ahab is absolutely awful in, like, the, the, the most sort of, you know, classical, like, one is struck with awe, you know? Mm-hmm. Um... So I think we are, like, I mean, we have reached the end of the chapter. Yep. I, um, I, I think did we have, have thoroughly, oh, no, if we haven't thoroughly exhausted Well, I it. had, like, just a, one or two, like, notes that sure, I sure. that I took that I thought were interesting. Um, just because, like, uh, one was, um, there, there's that moment when, uh, uh, first of all, this is just kind of, like, an interesting quality of the writing. When it's on the bit where uh, Ishmael is talking about how Moby Dick will sort of habitually, like, wreck ships. Um, and, and the state that people find themselves in when they've had their ship wrecked by Moby Dick, right? And and the, the there's that image of, like, the sun smiling at you as if on a birth, right? A birth or um, a bridal. Just, you know, right. and, and same sun as when you are horribly maimed by the incarnation of suffering. Yep. Uh, and, and, and so, like... Uh, first of all, I think the writing there is interesting because he, he, he moves very smoothly as we are very, at this point, I think used to seeing this book do between like this general idea of like the thing that Moby Dick does, his myth or his habitual behavior towards the specific scene of the, his three boats stove around him. And like, we're coming to the point of the actual story of Ahab's life, you know, um, it, it comes to us at first as this anonymized particular version of the fight with Moby Dick. And of course, like, if you have a single brain in your head, it's like, oh, the classic type of fight with Moby Dick. Oh, now it's becoming specific. Oh, I wonder who's doing that. Yeah, yeah. But he builds a certain drama there, which I think is very nice. Yeah, yeah, no, he does. Something that you don't get across in the in the, in the the little bit of reading I did was that after the reach the fathom deep life of the whale, then you have the sentence, that captain was Ahab. And then all the whalers mm-hmm. stood up and clapped. <laughs> yeah, that, right. well, they were all dead, so none of them could do that yes. at that point. But uh, also, right, another thing that I wanted to point out is that the visual image of uh, a wrecked ship with the sun shining through the fog representing, like, God's perspective on the situation was previously seen in this book. That's ah. the painting in the Spouter Inn. Yes. Remember? Or- and when we saw that painting, it was a totally conventional image of, like, Christian mercy, of, like, even in our worst moments, I don't think that was the Spouter Inn. I think that was in the chapel. The Spouter Inn had the giant, torrid blob of paint. Oh, 
you're right. I'm confusing two different paintings, both of which were of like a shipwreck. Yeah. But um, you're totally right. The Spatter Inn painting is different. I'm talking about the chapel painting and the chapel painting. Yeah. So it's a, it was a shipwreck with a patch of sunlight and and like, I think Ishmael pretty much laid it out in as simple terms for us that the sunlight represents like God's mercy yes. and God's love that even in our darkest orient moments. Our ship by. Yes, which we... And this is that image, and it comes back, and it it has totally different emotional valence, and, like, it's not just... Like, Ishmael tells us what his different emotional valence is, because he says, judge then to what pitches of inflamed, distracted fury. Like, that's Mm -hmm. the... Basically, Ishmael is saying, oh, it's nice to look at a painting and think about, like, being touched by God's love at the moment when you were your lowest... But if you were at your lowest and somebody told you to think about God, you would punch them in the fucking face. And that's (laughs) what that moment is, is like, you're at your lowest and someone is like, well, God made the universe, you know? And it's like, yeah, God did this to me, you asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and I think it is really confronting, like, the central cruelty of the idea of providence, basically. So I should point something out, which is I went back and looked at that description of the painting and the uh-huh. painting, the ship is in the process of beating against, uh, beating against the surf and close to the rocks. But uh, the um, mm. it is not yet wrecked. In fact, it's oh. uh, it is presented as, at least at the time, Ishmael presents that serenest azure of the sky as the sun is breaking through as a as a hope that you will not be wrecked, that you will be oh, saved. So it's- Oh my god, so it's the difference between, like, being saved before something terrible happens to you, right? And someone being, like, after something terrible has happened to you, being like, yeah, well, did you hear that Christ's love saves? And you're like, uh-huh, would have been nice to know about that before the whale got my leg, thanks. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, I... <laughs> like, it, it is very, it makes a lot of sense how, like, yeah, the idea uh, that, like divine providence is always there to guide us even in the darkest moments only holds up as long as there's no truly dark moments and when you actually have that shipwreck the li- the light of the sun comes too late and means nothing for you god this is so powerful i fucking love this book yeah i mean i certainly think that's the way that one can read it and i i feel like uh sort of to ring out the episode there's a line i've seen and i'll need to hunt down the actual quotation before we finish this book you know in uh, bajillion mm-hmm. years um, which is uh, that Melville is supposed to have said having completed the draft in a letter to I believe a, a confidant I believe Hawthorne I have written an evil book yeah I have heard that one that's a big fucking thing to say I... and I think that in the context of uh, Ishmael's meek and mild and kind Christianity and whatever Melville's own views were, and certainly in the general social context, what then is an evil book? It might well yeah. be a book that is quite committed to certain heresies. Yeah, I mean, yeah, look. <laughs> All right, we got to call it because we have been recording for over three hours. Yes. but but uh... I am so excited to finish this book and to keep going and to find out what happens when you actually, I mean, look. I know that we are eventually going to get to a certain, like, immortal line that suggests to me 
that Ahab is at the very least going to say that he's making, like, physical knife contact with Moby Dick. And on some level, like, from hell's heart I stab at thee is the moment that we are driving forward to from now on. And it it always has been, right? Because I've always known about that quotation, and I've always known that that is Ahab stabbing the whale. Like, you can't not know those things. Spoilers, but... But now... (laughs) No, I mean... But now we know exactly what it is going to mean when... I mean, okay, we don't, because there's the whole rest of the book. But we, we we have been told at this point what it would mean if he were to stab the whale right now. And I am so excited. (sighs) And what tune is it you pull to, men? A dead whale or a stove boat? (laughs) (sighs) 